Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode number nine on non-traumatic eye emergencies, we have with us Dr. George Perfiris. He's an emergency physician at Toronto East General Hospital, where he is the Director of Emergency Medical Education. He is the recipient of multiple teaching awards, including the Emergency Medicine Undergraduate Education Teaching Award for 2009-2010 from the University of Toronto, where he is an assistant professor. Dr. Simon Kingsley is an emergency physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, where he is the interim chief. I generally don't jump up and down with excitement when I pick up a chart with a non-traumatic eye complaint. Because so often it seems there's little we can do for these patients, and somehow the cases end up being generally unsatisfying to manage. While this might be true for the majority of non-traumatic eye complaints, there are a handful of not-so-uncommon conditions that are true emergencies that do require prompt diagnosis and that we can do a lot for in the ED besides just calling the on-call ophthalmologist. In this episode, we're going to divide acute non-traumatic eye emergencies into four categories— the painful red eye, the painless red eye, painful loss of vision, and painless loss of vision, and present cases to Dr. George Perfiris and Dr. Simon Kingsley in each category, who will guide us through the differential diagnosis and get our synapses firing with key diagnostic features and clinical pearls. So welcome, Dr. Perfiris and Dr. Kingsley. Thank you, Dr. Hellman. Thank you, Dr. Hellman. All right, let's jump right into the first case. Our first case is a 75-year-old man who presents to your emergency department at 9 p.m. by ambulance from home with a chief complaint of abdominal pain. According to EMS, his pain began abruptly one hour ago. His abdominal pain was associated with nausea, vomiting, and a frontal headache, which is ongoing on arrival in your emergency department. There's not much more history you can obtain from the patient as he seems forgetful. The EMS tells you that his wife, who takes care of him at home, is on her way. Hospital records show that the patient was in your hospital's day surgery department five days prior for a routine, uneventful right cataract removal. He has a history of mild dementia, diabetes, and Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. He takes metformin, ASA, ramipril, Aricept, and polytrim eye drops. On examination, he appears uncomfortable but alert. His vitals show a heart rate of 90, a blood pressure of 140 on 80, a respiratory rate of 20, an oxygen saturation of 98%, a temperature of 36.2, and a glucose of 9. His wife arrives just as you're starting the physical exam. Dr. Kingsley, at this point, what else would you want to know from the history from the wife? Well, I think uh, with the case presented so far, it, it seems like a pretty wide differential. I mean, the things that stick out in my mind, you've got an elderly patient who's not going to be a great historian because of his cognitive illness. So you're going to have to explore a lot of areas. You're going to have to pursue abdominal pathologies, cardiovascular pathologies, which can present this abdominal pain, neurologic because of his headache, but also he's been in hospital five days ago. So you've also got to think of all the standard post-operative problems that arise, uh, anything from, again, uh, ischemic event, uh, an MI, to uh, local complications of his surgery. Dr. Perfiris, is there anything else in particular you'd want to know from the wife at this point? 
I probably want to know more about sort of the timeline of the events. When was he last well? And then just the circumstances around when the, uh, the abdominal pain and all the symptoms started. Okay. So let's go on with the history a bit. He was last well until that day when the patient was working in the garden until sundown. Uh, he went into the house and within a few minutes, he started complaining of abdominal pain and headaches simultaneously. A few minutes later, he started vomiting. The vomit contained no blood or bile. This was the first time he had these complaints. Uh, he had no past surgical history other than the cataract removal five days prior. His last bowel movement was that morning and normal. He had no chest pain and no shortness of breath. There was no speech deficit, difficulty with gait, limb weakness, or paresthesias. He had been complaining of right eye discomfort and blurred vision since the surgery five days ago. He had no risk factors for subarachnoid hemorrhage, including no personal or family history of brain aneurysms, no polycystic kidney disease, or hypertension. He is a non-smoker and does not drink alcohol. On physical examination, his cardiovascular exam is unremarkable. Abdomen is soft and non-tender with no palpable mass and normal bowel sounds. His neurologic exam reveals that he's oriented to time and place. His left pupil is around and reactive to light, while the right pupil, the one in which he had the recent cataract removed, is dilated and very sluggish to light. The rest of the neurological exam is grossly normal. So how would this sort of narrow your, your differential diagnosis? You know, the concern is obviously going to be related to his ophthalmologic uh, events of five days past. You want to start to try and get a characteristic of the headache that he's describing because if he has a headache, quote-unquote headache, arising from his eye, that, that I find patients describe that poorly. Some describe it as eye pain. Some describe it as headache, some describe it as sinus pressure. So I want to elucidate more about the nature of this headache uh, to find out if it's of an ophthalmologic cause or some other cause. Okay, so when you do try and really get down to the details, he does say that it's his eye itself that really hurts. One of the things I do is try and characterize eye pain into three classifications. And when I'm there with a patient... I will say, okay, Mrs. Smith, you're describing eye pain. There's three kinds of eye pain. I want to describe them, and, and you tell me what kind. And I think when I do that, what I'm trying to do is help anatomically determine where it might be coming from. So the first is the, the upfront, scratchy, sand-in-my-eye kind of eye pain, which tends to arise from anterior structures, uh, your lids, foreign bodies, cornea, conjunctiva. Then there's the kind of deep behind the eye, achy, toothachy, pressure, headache, pain, which tend to arise from posterior structures. And then there's photophobia, which is usually something to do with your uveal tract. So to try and get a characteristic of the pain, we help uh, anatomically locate where the, the pain's coming from. And you can have more than one. I mean, it's not exclusionary. So for instance, some people have both photophobia and anterior eye pain, some people have photophobia, posterior kind of deep achy pain. That's a great pearl that Dr. Kingsley just gave us about three types of eye pain according to anatomy when taking a history to try and elucidate exactly where the pain is coming from. The three kinds of pain are 
One, the upfront scratchy sand in the eye type pain, which indicates a problem with the anterior structures like the conjunctiva, cornea, or eyelids. The second kind of pain is the deep, boring eyeball aching pain, which indicates a problem with the posterior structures. And thirdly, photophobia, which indicates involvement of the uvule tract or the middle eye, which includes the iris, ciliary body, and choroid. And as Dr. Kingsley mentioned, you can have a combination of these, but usually one predominates. What would be your general approach to uh, the physical exam of the eye? So with uh, all eye complaints, you should go through a systematic way of examining the eye. If you always use the same approach, you're not going to miss anything. I guess the first thing to always do is check the visual acuity, the vital sign of the eye. And I think that that should be the first thing that in any eye complaint should be documented. I guess the exception would be a, like a chemical burn where you really want to rush into you know, for irrigation and you can check it afterwards. So visual acuity first. I just want to mention one thing about visual acuity that I know a lot of our house staff always bring up. If the patient doesn't bring eyeglasses, they always say, uh, well, I couldn't assess visual acuity because they didn't bring their glasses. And in our emergency department, we've got a Snellen chart that's you know, six meters away. I, I think it's important to realize that the difference between checking acuity from a near or far distance, I mean, that's probably much more important if you're going to refract somebody and fit them for glasses than it is uh, for our function in the emergency department. What, really, what we really want to know about is whether you can subtend an angle, irrespective of the distance away from a refractive point of view. So one of the things I do is if there's not a pocket Snellen handy, if somebody can't do far vision, check near vision, and it's perfectly appropriate to hold up a piece of 8.5 by 11 with some type letters on there and say, are you able to read this line? And what I'll document in the chart is, you know, able to read 4 millimeter type at 1 meter distance. So I think there are ways around the, the problem of, I, I can't check acuity because they didn't bring glasses, and pinholing is another one that you can do that's theoretically supposed to get you back right down to 20-20 vision in the vast majority of people. Great, that's a pearl. So the visual acuity you do first, and where would you go from there? I would quickly check this, or the visual fields, just doing sort of the confrontational technique. From there, I would move on to just the anterior part of the eye and look for, for, for redness, uh, the distribution of the redness. Is it everywhere? Is it around the iris or the ciliary flesh? Uh, is it more temporally or medially that can help you sort of narrow down your differential diagnosis? The size and the reactivity of the pupil. So is it, is it pinpoint? Is it large? Is it fixed? Is it irregular shaped? Is it pointing anywhere? These can all give you hints of, a, of, a, of an underlying diagnosis. I would then proceed to check the extraocular movements looking for any cranial nerve palsies. After that, I would proceed to do a sort of a fundoscopic examination, which is obviously not always easy to see. Um, some departments will now have a device called a panoptic where you can actually get an excellent uh, view of the, uh, of the retina, but unfortunately, most hospitals in Toronto don't have that. I know at St. Mike's they do have a panoptic. Do you find it useful? There's two ways to answer that. It is more useful than a traditional ophthalmoscope. The field of view, I, I always think that when, when you're using a traditional ophthalmoscope to look at somebody's retina, it's like looking around your garage with a flashlight. You can at any point see, you know, eight inches of diameter, but to get an appreciation for the, the way your whole garage looks in the dark, you, you can't. So 
the panoptic certainly provides a much wider field. I think the implication, the second part of the question though is how much does that end up contributing to your diagnostic acumen? And that'll depend upon case by case. There are some diseases, as I'm sure we'll talk about, that don't really have much to see uh, in the retina that it'd be nice to be able to see, but even if you had a super panoptic and it was even better, you may not be able to see anything. So it is better, but sometimes even better doesn't help too much if you're trying to visualize the retina. I'd like to say even one more thing about the physical exam. I think there are some parts of physical exam that we do in emergency medicine that are not as vital. I mean, when you think about the physical exam of somebody who's coming in and the only thing on your differential is ischemic chest pain that has since resolved, let's face it, the physical is sometimes not that contributory. But the physical exam of ophthalmologic complaints is highly contributory, I find, to your differential and your management. And, and so it's one of these times when you really need a good physical as opposed to some other areas in medicine where it's less vital. And that means that you have to have a very comfortable and cooperative patient. So especially in people with eye pain, um, it's, it's almost impossible to try and examine somebody if they're uncomfortable, maybe their eyes watering or they have so much photophobia, they're, they're sealing up their eye. It's so important to make these people comfortable with either topical medications, uh, oral or parenteral medications sometimes because it's so vital that you get a proper look in their eye. I can't overemphasize that. I think it's very important. On doing a detailed eye exam, it reveals a visual acuity of 20 over 20 in the left eye and 20 over 100 in the right eye. Visual fields were grossly normal, extraocular movements were normal. Examination of the anterior segment revealed a red eye with a hazy cornea. The slit lamp exam revealed a shallow anterior chamber with cells and flare. There was fluorescein uptake where the surgical incision had been made as well as diffuse precipitates indicating a keratitis type picture. Intraocular pressure in the left eye was 24 and in the right eye was 48. A presumptive diagnosis of acute angle glaucoma was made. Two drops of timolol 0.5% were given and an IV was started. Gravel was ordered as well as acetazolamide or Diamox 500 milligrams IV and the on-call ophthalmologist was paged. 45 minutes later, as you were explaining the case to the ophthalmologist who took his time calling back as they often do, uh, the nurse calls you stat to the patient's bedside where you find him acutely short of breath and drowsy. The vitals are now a heart rate of 185, blood pressure of 80 on 40, respiratory rate of 32, and an O2 sat of 98%. So, Dr. Porphyrus, what do you think would be causing his sudden change in status? I think probably the topical beta blockers, which is a, sort of a key pearl, is that anything you put topically in the eye can be systemically absorbed. And in this case, probably the timolol was, was absorbed systemically, and because he has underlying WPW, if he uh, was also an AFib, this probably blocked the AV node and sort of accelerated the conduction of the heart through the accessory pathway, and he went into this sort of rapid AFib with WPW, which caused him to become hypotensive. Actually, that's pretty much exactly what happened with this patient. The patient was taken to recess. Uh, he was shocked, and he converted back to normal sinus rhythm. His vital stabilized, and ophthalmology came to see him. Ophthalmology agreed with your diagnosis of glaucoma, and the 
patient was treated and eventually did well. So let's talk a little bit more about acute angle closure glaucoma. Usually it's acute onset, uh, eye pain, uh, usually with nausea and vomiting as a predominant symptom. Some ophthalmologists will even say if they're not vomiting, they don't have glaucoma. I wouldn't go that far, but usually pain, nausea, and vomiting are the cardinal symptoms. When you, when you look at the pupil, the pupil is fixed and mid-dilated. Uh, you may have a cornea, a cornea that's hazy because of the increase in intraocular pressure. They, they may have some photophobia, and they usually do complain of visual loss. They may also see halos around objects because of the, uh, the corneal edema. When you check the uh, intraocular pressure, uh, by definition, it's over 21, although in reality, it's much higher than that. It's usually between sort of 40 and 80. And what are the, the usual risk factors and, and triggers for glaucoma? Usually, they're elderly patients who are, are farsighted or hyperopic. A sudden transition from a light environment to a dark environment, which, which causes your pupil to dilate and can cause these sort of the acute glaucoma. Certain drugs, anticholinergics or the antihistamines, the antipsychotics, antidepressants. Uh, sympathomimetic drugs, anything that dilates your pupil can, can trigger an attack of glaucoma. Dr. Kingsley here is going to go over the pathophysiology of primary acute angle closure glaucoma, as well as comment a little bit on some of the triggers and risk factors. Primary angle closure glaucoma is some kind of mechanical obstruction that prevents the aqueous in your anterior chamber from getting into the corners and by your what's called the trabecular meshwork, because it's supposed to be a normal circulation. But if there's some kind of mechanical obstruction preventing that flow, you get, it's essentially a compartment syndrome of your eye. But that's much different than open angle glaucoma, which people walk around on this planet with every day, uh, months, years, and is detected only because they eventually start having a peripheral vision loss. But it doesn't present in this, in this uh, acute, painful way. So... Usually, I think when we talk about glaucoma, we're talking about concerns or a presentation of somebody with primary angle closure glaucoma, where that's obstructed, whether it's medications that obstruct it or anything that's going to bunch up stuff into the corner of your eye is going to do it. So if you dilate your eye, your iris bunches up like a curtain getting pushed open into the window and in the corner, it all gets bunched up and blocks the flow. Um, certain medications can... So classically, I think anticholinergics are always mentioned, but also keep in mind they are one of the most common medications on the planet, over-the-counter or prescription drugs that have anticholinergic side effects. In fairness, this is a disease that it, you've got to know about, and it's, it's vital and its emerg emergency management is very important, but it is fairly uncommon. Think about how many people take anticholinergics out there. And uh, it's still, I was on my way down here, I was trying to think, I've probably seen approximately 80,000 patients in my professional career. And I've seen a primary angle closure glaucoma perhaps eight times, 10 times. So its incidence is unusual. And I also wanted to mention that I think there's a difference between as a clinician being aware of what might have precipitated out an episode, but that's different than being wary about giving a medication because of the possibility it's going to precipitate an episode. So, you know, we'll see residents who will deny somebody, you know, somebody's bradycardic, like a completely different patient, somebody's bradycardic, and they need atropine. But no, it may precipitate out an episode of primary ankle closure glaucoma. And how many people out there have been denied an appropriate medication for concern that is going to 
precipitate out of the case. I mean, it's, all, it's almost unpredictable, short of somebody by fluke having a screen for risk factors for it. So we should be aware that, yes, there are medications, anticholinergics, and anything with an anticholinergic uh, side effect. Also, um, some sulfonamides can do it, topamax can do it, anything that dilates your pupil. But we shouldn't hesitate to give those medications. Sure. Yeah, I think it's helpful just in terms of when we're taking the history, if something is in there and it goes along with the history right. and the story, it might just add another piece of data to your suspicion that it might be acute glaucoma. I agree, but it shouldn't prevent you from giving those medications to somebody who otherwise doesn't have any ocular problem. Sure. I mean, yeah, you could argue just about any medication that we could, give in the emergency exactly. could precipitate something. Yeah. So let's review just the key diagnostic features of acute angle closure glaucoma. First, we just need to remember the risk factors. It tends to be in the elderly who are farsighted because of enlargement of their lens. In the story, what often triggers the glaucoma is some sort of low light environment, like the patient walking into a movie theater, or an anticholinergic drug, or just the act of accommodation of the eyes, like something like reading. In terms of the diagnostic criteria, acute angle closure glaucoma is defined by at least two of the following symptoms, ocular pain, nausea and vomiting, and a history of intermittent blurring of vision with halos around lights, plus at least three of the following signs, an intraocular pressure of greater than 21, conjunctival injection, corneal epithelial edema, mid-dilated non-reactive pupil, and a shallow anterior chamber. Next, we're going to talk a little bit about intraocular pressure and about how to identify a shallow anterior chamber. Dr. Perfiris, you had mentioned about the intraocular pressures and what numbers are typically used, what numbers are used as a cutoff for normal. So above 21 is abnormal for pressure in the eye, but typically in an acute angle closure glaucoma, we see much higher. What pressure in the eye would trigger you to immediately start treatment in the emergency department? Is there sort of a specific number or do you go more on the patient presentation? The actual number, the actual pressure is just one data point. I would sort of put the whole clinical scenario into, into play. So if the patient has a classic story, uh, acute onset, eye pain, red eye, nausea, vomiting, and he's got a pressure of 25 that's still, for me, that's an acute angle closure glaucoma. So even though 25 doesn't seem to be, I mean, it's above the cutoff, but it's still pretty low, I would still start treatment at that point. On the other hand, if he has no symptoms and his pressure is 25, then I don't think he actually has acute angle closure glaucoma. That can wait for an outpatient ophthalmological workup for chronic glaucoma. Yeah, I would completely agree. There's no one number that is going to define glaucoma. And in fact, ophthalmologists will say that glaucoma and intraocular pressure are not necessarily linked. Truly, glaucoma is, you have to have other, you know, you've got to have wasting of your disc and, and um, change in your visual status in the setting of increased ocular pressure. So I agree, it's a, it's a whole clinical picture. You're not going to not treat somebody just because technically they fall below 26. And there are many case reports of people who have primary angle closure glaucoma whose pressures are less than 26. Right. It, it varies as well. It's, it can be race-based and population-based, age-based. There, although I believe the normal is 15, you do get pockets of the population where it sits higher or lower. Right. So that brings up actually the point that most of us are using a tonal pen hmm. to measure intraocular pressure. 
I find using the toilet pen, I can get the pressure one time is four, the next time it's 78, the next time it's 32. Mm. I mean, it seems like it's all over the map sometimes, and you're supposed to average three of them, and that's supposed to be your magic number. How useful do you find the tonal pen, especially in cases like this? Well, I guess the question is, what's your alternative? I mean, you've got a variety of ways to measure interocular pressure out there. I was raised on a Shiat phenomenon where you lay the patient down and you put this, looks like a... Uh, a weigh scale on their eye. However, having said that, it was reproducible. Its precision was very good. And it's still out there. And I personally think if, if your department is looking to purchase some way to do it, that's probably the cheapest and most reliable way to do it. All of the devices, I think, have pluses and minuses. So it's inherent in any device is going to be some error, depending on the situation. In my emergency department, we have a tonal pen. I recalibrate it with every reading, and I measure three and look at the variance, which our tonal pen reads out, whether you're within 5%, 10%, 15%. And sometimes I'm measuring it five or six times, but for the most part, you know, once you collect your data, you start getting a real sense of what it is. And, you know, maybe it shouldn't be down to the, to the millimeter of mercury. Perhaps we should be saying, you know, low, medium, or high. Right. But, um... You know, like Dr. Porfiri said, it's one data point, right? So whether it is truly 21 or it's actually 17 shouldn't have such a huge influence on your management. I guess one important thing to remember about when you measure interocular pressure is making sure the person doesn't have an open globe injury, right? So sometimes you'll see Niga resident, somebody's come in with an open globe injury, and to be complete, they want to do a full-on uh, ophthalmologic physical exam, and they'll go and press on the eye or, you know, apply substantial pressure to the eye and somebody who has an open globe injury, obviously an absolute contraindication. Any concern over an open globe, you don't want to apply pressure. The other physical exam test that's sometimes talked about is the oblique flashlight test to measure the depth of the anterior chamber. In acute closure angle glaucoma, uh, the depth of the anterior chamber is shallow. Could you just run us through how to do the oblique flashlight test to try and measure the depth of the anterior chamber? Sure. So the idea is that if you shine a light from the temporal region of the affected eye that's, that's parallel to the iris, you can tell how high the iris is, whether it's bulging into the anterior chamber or it's laying flat. And the analogy I use when I describe this is if you had a volcano that was sitting under a glass dome, the volcano is your iris and the glass dome is your cornea. If your volcano was very flat, if you shone light from the side, it wouldn't cast a shadow. Uh, you'd hardly see any shadow. You'd be able to see almost uh, all around the volcano, and that would represent a normal or a normally deep anterior chamber. But if your volcano was very peaked, when you shone light from the side, it would cast a shadow onto the far side of the volcano. You wouldn't be able to see the far side of the volcano and that means that the volcano was tall and tenting up and occupying a lot of the space in the interior chamber. And that would be a shallow chamber and therefore a narrow angle. And the oblique flashlight test, I understand, you know, it doesn't have 
close to 100% specificity, but again, it's another data point that can help you in this sort of setting. I agree. It's it's really just to find out if somebody's at risk. So in this case, now that we've established the diagnosis, can you just run us through the emergency management? The, f- the first thing is to uh, install topical beta blockers, uh, and the usual one is Timowel. You can give either the 0.25 or the 0.5% solution and put one drop initially, and that will decrease the production of the aqueous humor. Uh, I guess I should always, going back to this case, if they have any contraindications for any beta blocker, you probably would probably skip this step, as we found out with this patient who had an underlying WPW. So typically anybody who's already bradycardic or who has COPD or asthma that you're worried about using a, a regular beta blocker, I, wouldn't, I would probably skip this step. The next thing it would give would be a drug called Diamox, which is acetazolamide. You can get 500 milligrams IV initially, and that sort of decreases the intraocular pressure. The next step would be to give something like pilocarpine, which is a cholinergic drug, uh, which would shrink the pupil, uh, hopefully sort of opening up the angle and opening up the canals of Schlem to allow some drainage. If after you've given the uh, the Diamox and the Timolol and the pilocarpine, you're not uh, getting lowering of the intraocular pressure, then you can give IV mannitol, which is an osmotic diuretic, which pretty much sort of sucks the fluid out of your body uh, to help decrease the intraocular pressure. The final step, of course, would be the the ophthalmologist would come in and do a laser iridotomy to puncture a hole in between the anterior and posterior chamber to permanently fix this problem. So let's just run through the ED management of acute glaucoma. First, your goal is to decrease the aqueous humor and help open the angle. So to decrease the production of aqueous humor and help open the angle, you want to give two drugs. First, you want to give Timolol or Timoptic, 0.25 or 0.5% solution, one drop. While you're giving the Timolol, you want to set up an IV to give acetazolamide or Diamox, 500 milligrams IV. Remember that placing the patient in the supine position may help pull the lens away from the iris while you're giving treatment. After this and management with these two drugs, you want to give a topical meiotic, and that would be pilocarpine or pilocar. You give one to two drops every 15 minutes for two doses, and this will help constrict the pupil and pull the iris away from the angle. The intraocular pressure should be checked every half hour or so, and for those without a good response, you can add intravenous mannitol 1.25 to 2 grams per kilogram IV as a 20% solution. And the mannitol will decrease the IOP by causing an osmotic diuresis. One of the things we've done in our emergency department that I think is important is a couple of years ago, I assembled primary angle closure glaucoma kit containing those four medications so that you're not trying to remember specifically which agent. So in that kit, we've got an eyedropper of Timolol, we've got uh, a bag of mannitol, we've got uh, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, so we've got a, an actually oral dose of acetazolamide and a, a dropper of pilocarpine. So it might be worthwhile, I mean, you've got these medications probably in your emergency department, it might be worthwhile to put them all in a small box and label it primary angle closure glaucoma kit. <laughs> As Dr. Kingsley was saying, this is not a common diagnosis, and so it's something that we always need to be thinking about in the back of our minds for patients who present with headache, for patients who present with abdominal pain, with nausea and vomiting. It should be on our differential. 
why is this diagnosis sometimes missed? Well, just like in this case, if you have an elderly patient, if a patient uh, has disability or dementia or a psychiatric patient where it's hard to get the detailed history and it's hard to get a thorough physical sometimes, they might be challenging, that's when you have to be a bit more careful not to miss this diagnosis. Remember, also, we learned from this case that although Timolol has only a little bit of systemic absorption, it does have some systemic absorption. We just need to be mindful of that. I think one more point is that this can also be uh, misdiagnosis migraine. A lot of patients will come in with headache, nausea, vomiting, photophobia, and they'll be sort of holding their eye. And there have been cases, the case reports where they've been sort of diagnosed as migraine sent home, nobody even examined the eye. So anybody who comes in with migraine-like symptoms, especially if they tend to wear sunglasses, make sure you take those sunglasses off. Uh, take a look at the eye before you send them home as a migraine. Right. I wonder what the positive predictive value of sunglasses is for a drug seeker. <laughs> it's positive predictive value for a lot of things, as is uh, eating at triage, I think. Right. And maybe personality disorder as well. <laughs> Don't forget the tooth-to-tattoo ratio. <laughs> Okay, let's move on to our second case. We're still in the category of painful red eye. This is a 37-year-old woman who presented with a chief complaint of bilateral eye pain, photophobia, and redness over the last 24 hours. She denied any recent trauma, foreign body, or contact lens use. There was no history of prodromal upper respiratory tract infection, no previous ocular disease, no headache, and no eye discharge. Her medical history was significant for syphilis 10 years earlier that had been treated with IM penicillin. She denied allergies and took no other medications. So, Dr. Kingsley, just from this short history, what would be your differential at this point? Well, you know, again, the differential is going to be fairly wide. And I think as long as you've got an approach to generating a differential with ophthalmologic complaints, uh, you're going to be better off. So here we've got a woman, she's got eye pain, and again, like that first case, I would want to clarify exactly what she meant by eye pain. Was it upfront and scratchy? She has photophobia. That tells me that regardless of what's going on, there's something irritating her ciliary structures. So I, you know anatomically that's got to be involved. But if you start anatomically from the most anterior aspect of the eye, things that can cause irritated, painful eyes is a long list. Anything that's going to irritate the conjunctiva and anything that's going to inter uh, irritate the periorbital structures, the lids, so you've got blepharitis, horiolum, then proceeding back underneath the conjunctiva, the sclera, so the sclera can cause pain. Anything to do with the cornea, so corneal abrasions, corneal infections, other problems of keratitis, and then moving past uh, into the anterior chamber, You've got your iris and your uh, uveal tract, and that can uh, certainly cause pain. So, I mean, the differential is fairly large. The fact that she has photophobia, however, is going to make me jump mostly to problems that are involving the ciliary body. And that could be what is standard, commonly referred to as uveitis, although depending upon which aspect of your uvea is involved, some people call it iritis or you know, chorea retinitis, depending upon where it is. 
Okay, let's move on to the physical examination. The physical exam revealed normal vital signs and a well-appearing woman. Her eye exam showed diffuse erythema and petechial hemorrhages of the bulbar conjunctiva. Ciliary flush was noted. No periorbital edema was noted. Visual acuity was 20-20 in both eyes. Extraocular movements were intact. Pupils were mid-position and equal, round and reactive to light and accommodation. Visual fields were grossly normal. The slit lamp exam revealed cells and flare in the anterior chamber of the right eye. There was no hypopion. Following fluorescein staining, there were no foreign bodies, dendrites, or abrasions that were seen. Intraocular pressure in both eyes were normal. The fundoscopic examination was unremarkable. She had no rash or swollen joints, and her chest was clear to auscultation. So, based on this physical exam, what would the most likely diagnosis be? Well, this physical exam is marked by the absence of some things. So, you have normal inspection of the cornea, including a normal fluorescein, and that mostly lets out uh, problems of keratitis. The conjunctiva are essentially unremarkable, and conjunctivitis and its other findings such as uh, discharge, is uh, unlikely. The normal interocular pressure is reassuring, but as we heard from the last case, isn't the be-all and end-all of measures for glaucoma, but it doesn't really sound like a glaucoma case. And the normal fundoscopic exam, also reassuring uh, that certain retinal and posterior chamber diseases are ruled out. So it's, it's really the photophobia that's weighing heavy in my head, and is making me think of iritis, or the more general term is going to be uveitis, anterior uveitis in this case. Okay. I always find uveitis is a term that's thrown around that people mean different things by uveitis. Can you just go through all the different names, the iritis, uveitis, anterior uveitis, Mm. posterior uveitis, iridocyclitis, there's all these terms that we sometimes get mixed up. Can you just try and clear that up for us? Yeah, I agree. It is uh, some confusing nomenclature. And I think it stems from the fact that anatomically, the the uveal tract is comprised primarily of three structures, each of which can be inflamed on its own or in conjunction. And depending on which combination you have, a different word is given to it. But ultimately, the uveal tract, there's, so there's three things. There's the iris there's the ciliary body, and then the choroid. And those three structures, if you slice an eye in half, are actually contiguous. The iris is just a big outpouching, really, of your ciliary body, which sits at the periphery of your iris. And then that is then contiguous with the choroid. That's the vascular layer that sits between your retina and your sclera and goes all the way to the back uh, of your eye. So any portion of those, and so that whole thing is called your uveal tract or your uvea, but it's really three separate anatomic structures in a way. So if your iris and your uh, ciliary body are inflamed, sometimes that's called iritis. And if uh, it's inflamed all the way to the back, you can have what's called chorioretinitis. So where along the length of that anatomic structure you have inflammation determines what name it's given. But for the most part, I think uh, the the majority of times we see this in the emergency department, it's inflammation of the anterior structures, the iris and the ciliary body. And that's why you have pain and mostly photophobia. 
So in anterior uveitis, or let's call it iritis for, for okay. this case, why should we care about iritis in particular as emergency physicians? There's probably three reasons. First of all, we've got, we've got a disease that's causing pathology. It's pain, photophobia, what have you. I mean, that alone is reason enough. Second of all, if you fail to detect it, the person can suffer long-term problems with their vision. So if it goes undetected and untreated, you can have scarring, you can have a misshapen, uh, malfunctioning iris, and problems with long-term vision loss. It puts you at a slight increased risk of retinal detachment if it goes on for a long time because of the synechia, the scarring that occurs. Uh, and then lastly, it can be the first presentation of a number of other diseases. So as we'll probably talk about, there are numerous causes of iritis, some of which are autoimmune, some of which are infectious, and irrespective of how it's first presenting, you want to know about that disease in general. At least half of cases of iritis are idiopathic, um, but the other half are secondary to systemic diseases. Can you just go over some of the more common systemic diseases and what we should be asking for in the history and looking out for in the physical exam? You know, as a professor of mine once said, he said there's, there's two kinds of diseases in medicine, those which are caused by an infection and then those in which the infectious agent has yet to be identified. And I think that's probably relatively true for that 50% of iritis that uh, is idiopathic. There's some suggestion in the literature that a number of these are probably viral-based. But having said that, the, the ones that we do know for sure about the cause are, are really the classified in different ways. I think the ophthalmologists tend to classify them into that, you know, that 19th century nomenclature of granulomatous versus non-granulomatous. Uh, I don't know if that's all that helpful, but the essence there is that the, the granulomatous ones or anything that makes a granuloma in your body can cause iritis. So here, you know, sarcoid and TB and syphilis and, and all the, that list that we all learned in medical school. I, I personally classify them into um, three or four different classifications. So there is post-traumatic iritis that you see not uncommonly with a minor eye injury. A couple of days uh, later, somebody coming in with the classic description of iritis, photophobia, an eye ache, and on physical exam, they have... Uh, features of, a, of an iritis. There are those that I suspect are viral or post-infectious, and occasionally people are describing a recent viral illness. And then there are those which are idiopathic but might be the first presentation of uh, an autoimmune disease. And many times, it's also important to be aware that iritis is very often unilateral. You'd think it would be bilateral, especially if it's an autoimmune disease, but sometimes it's unilateral. And what are some of the more common autoimmune diseases that it's associated with? And what are the kinds of things we should be looking for? Any of the seronegative autoimmune diseases. So you're talking uh, writers, ulcerative colitis, psoriatic arthritis, uh, even scleroderma. And so you're going to ask questions along those lines if you had unexplained joint swellings in the past, rash, back pain. And in terms of the physical examination features, uh, what are some of the key pearls there? Well, you know, to go through the physical exam, starting a visual acuity, your acuity can be affected. Uh, very early cases, the acuity is yet to be substantially affected. It's only once you start getting cellular debris in your anterior chamber that it's, you're, you're going to start having problems. Most of the diagnosis is going to come on slit lamp exam, 
one of the earliest findings is going to be inflammation of the vessels right at your limbus where the, where the cornea joins the white of your eye because that's where your anterior uvea sits and you get a rim, this pericorneal vessel injection. If the iritis has been brewing for a bit, you start to get cellular debris in your anterior chamber. And so on a slit lamp, this is one of the benefits of a slit lamp compared to say uh, an otoscope or, or uh, an ophthalmoscope or anything else we use to look closely at the eye, is that you can see cells floating in your anterior chamber. I always liken it to uh, snowflakes in your headlights when you're, when you're driving at night. They, they are thousands of them and they're there for a hundredth of a second. Uh, and they scintillate under a, a, uh, an oblique uh, light being shone uh, from the lateral aspect about 45 degrees. And if they're there enough, they will cause problems with the light beam that's between your cornea and your iris. So that the light beam as it falls in the iris is not crisp and sharp, it's diffuse, uh, which is also suggestive of debris in your anterior chamber. Okay. And lastly, if that's been brewing for a long period of time, that cellular debris can sit up under uh, on the undersurface of your cornea and give you a keratic pre precipitate. It really has to be brewing for a long time to find that, though. So the redness around the cornea that you're describing, that's the ciliary flush. Right. And just in terms of the photophobia, one of the things that I find useful is consensual photophobia. Mm. And that if they just have the findings in one eye of uveitis and their complaints are just in one eye, when you shine light into their other eye, they complain of pain in the affected eye. And just the other thing is that when you're using a topical anesthetic, typically the pain will not change much at all because you're not, you're not affecting the iris in particular. Yeah, I agree. You can almost use uh, the application of topical anesthetic as part of your diagnostic strategy sometimes. And I do that. Don't do it for cardiac disease if it goes away with, <laughs> with antacids. But uh, I think there is some benefit to uh, if your symptoms don't go away with the topical anesthetic, it's less likely that it's arising from your conjunctiva or, or the epithelium of your cornea. Right. And as opposed to uh, topical anesthetics, if you use cycloplegics in patients with iritis, that, that often does alleviate their pain. Right, because their pain is coming from an irritated, inflamed uh, mechanism that constricts your pupil. So paralyzing that stops the pain. Sometimes in iritis, the, the intraocular pressure is actually lower because you've got all these vessels that are dilated and swiping away your aqueous. Uh, and so you can get a, a differential of intraocular pressures. It's just one more little bit of information that can help you with a supposition that you may be dealing with iritis if their intraocular pressure is, you know, four or five points lower than the other eye. Sometimes what's associated with iritis is a uh, hypopion. Could you just go over for us what hypopion is and what it looks like? Sure. Hypopion literally means pus in the anterior chamber. Just like you have hyphema is blood in the anterior chamber. Hypopion, peon mean pus, um, is, would imply some kind of inflammatory debris sitting in the anterior chamber. So what you see is when you look at the uh, the anterior part of the eye, just with your with the naked eye, you'll see a, a layering of sort of white, a whitish uh, liquid towards sort of the bottom of the, of the cornea, analogous to eithema. In eithema, you'd see a red layering of blood. Here, you'd see a white layering of inflammatory debris. And usually, usually it's, it's more of a sign of an endophthalmitis. So if you see that somebody post-cataract surgery, 
that's a bad sign. It usually means that they do have endophthalmitis. Uh, but in the context of acute iritis, that's just another sort of data point to help you make the diagnosis. Reviewing iritis, what are the key historical features? So the patient usually comes in with deep aching pain that may radiate to the periorbital or temporal area. Sometimes it can be worse with eye movement and during accommodation. The key with the pain is that they also have photophobia. How about the physical examination? There's really three or four key features of iritis when it comes to the physical examination. One, there's ciliary flush, which is the erythema that's worse closer to the iris as opposed to erythema getting worse as you go out to the periphery as in conjunctivitis. Two, there's pain relief with the cycloplegic, but not pain relief with topical anesthetics. Three, consensual photophobia, whereby shining light into the unaffected eye will cause pain in the affected eye. Four, on slit lamp exam, you'll see keratitic precipitates. And lastly, five, you'll see cell and flare in the anterior chamber. Now, most of the cases of iritis are idiopathic, but some cases are associated with systemic diseases, such as collagen vascular diseases, like all the HLA B27 positive diseases, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriasis, writers, inflammatory bowel disease, and Bichette syndrome. It's also associated with autoimmune diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. It's associated with sarcoidosis. And lastly, and importantly, it's also associated with infections like herpes virus, toxoplasmosis, tuberculosis, and syphilis. So because iritis is often associated with systemic diseases, it's important to ask and look for systemic signs and symptoms like joint swelling and pain, rash, diarrhea, mouth ulcers, and back pain. So if the patient has any of these positive findings, they do need workup and referral to rule out systemic causes of their iritis. So now that we've diagnosed iritis and thought about some of the causes, what is the best emergency management of iritis? Well, it's really going to be two cornerstones of management. One is you want to stop the pupil from constricting, and and to do that, you've really got to paralyze it with midriatic drugs. So there are three standard pupil dilating agents that you'll find in, in emergency departments. So you've got uh, midriacil, you've got uh, cyclopentylate, and you've got homatropine. And, you know, people are saying, which one should I use? I think, although they have some slight differences, I think the main walkaway point is to answer that question, you just have to to, to know how long do you want it dilated? Because the main difference in those is how long it sticks around. So midriacil, it starts to wear off after two, three hours. And so it's, it's a good agent if you want to dilate people for an exam in the department, but not for a treatment point of view. Cyclopentylate lasts about a day and homatropine lasts a couple of days. So again, ask yourself how long you want to dilate it. In this case, it's for treatment reasons. You want to dilate the pupil to not only relieve the pain, but also to decrease the chance of those synechiae forming, that, that, that scarring tissue. So you would want to dilate it with something a little more long-acting and get definitive treatment, hopefully the next day or within a day or two, uh, with an ophthalmologist. So that's cornerstone number one. And the other is just pain control in general. I, th I think sometimes it doesn't occur to people to give oral medication 
for ophthalmologic complaint. And a lot of times when people have eye pain, aside from topical medications, you can give oral pain medications. I do that all the time. And especially in scenarios where you're going to have some substantial relief within a day. Sometimes you only have to give three or four tablets. So I think those are the cornerstones of treatment, at least from an emergency medicine point of view. Sure. Yeah. Usually when I'm, I'm speaking to the ophthalmologist, they usually prefer home atropine because it's a long acting and usually they're seeing them within 24 hours or so, right. but it'll usually last until they see them. Exactly. Yeah. I think the, uh, the choice of medication is directly dependent upon when the ophthalmologist is going to think that they're going to get around to seeing them. Right. Exactly. <laughs> is there anything longer than home atropine? Yeah. Okay. So don't, don't use atropine though. So atropine will last like three, four weeks and that's, and that's happened. Oh yeah. yeah, where people put atropine in, and patient can't drive for three weeks because their one pupil is dilated and they're very photophobic and sensitive; they can't focus at all. Right. Now, the other medication that the ophthalmologists use in iritis are topical steroids, and we've all been taught never use steroids yeah. in the emergency department. Non-ophthalmologists should never be using steroids. Can you just go through us what the reasoning behind that is and also when we can break that rule, if ever? Right. So, you know, never say never in medicine. I guess the, the main concern, probably where this arose from, is physicians who would give steroid, the underlying pathology of the patient, happen to be some form of infectious keratitis. And the classic one is going to be herpes simplex, but there are others, including uh, corneal ulcers that you get with pseudomonas infection from contact lens use. And by applying steroids, it rages out of control. And this transparent structure that we're born with gets permanently scarred, and you have permanent vision loss. So I think that's the biggest concern, because nobody ever wants to cause permanent vision loss, obviously. Steroids have been sworn off. And I would mostly agree with that. There are, I'll admit that there are times that I prescribe topical steroid drops as an emergency physician. But it's really in cases where I have a very strong, for whatever the specific case was, a very strong reason to be sure that there's no active infectious agent and somebody who's not at risk. So I think the takeaway message is going to be don't give them, except occasionally in consultation with an ophthalmologist and a very specific patient who you know is going to get quick follow-up. Occasionally it's of value. Sure. I think it all came about from primary care in the office where you don't have a slit lamp and you can't see that a patient has herpes keratitis or that they have an ulcer because you don't have a slit lamp. Right. And so in that case, for sure, you know, steroids would definitely be out of the question. But I agree that in the setting where you're in the emergency department and you have uh, a good slit lamp exam and a good solid diagnosis and you've spoken to the ophthalmologist... I, I usually will go ahead in those cases. Yeah, I agree. Dr. Perfiris, do you have anything to add to that? I agree as well. As long as you talk to the ophthalmologist and arrange follow-up for the next morning, yeah, it's safe to give Predfort. And they'll usually tell you to give it, especially in iritis, quite frequently. They'll tell you to give the Predfort you know, every hour for the, for, for the first 12 hours and uh, even to wake up the patient sometimes every two or three hours to give it to get the inflammation under control. A quick review of the ED management of iritis. Iritis is treated in the emergency department with mydriatics and cycloplegics. Cyclopentolate and homatropine are the most popular drugs that are used. Cyclopentolate is 0.5 to 2%, one drop three times a day. And homatropine, 2 to 5%, is one drop three times a day as well. 
Homatropine is usually preferred due to its longer duration of action. These medications work for two reasons. One is they alleviate discomfort, and the second, they break up the synechiae or scar tissue that's caused by iritis. Remember that if the patient's in significant pain, opioid analgesics can be prescribed. These patients should be seen by ophthalmology within 24 hours and emergently in very severe cases. You can consider adding steroid drops, but only in consultation with the ophthalmologist and only in cases where you're absolutely sure that there's no infectious cause of the iritis. Finally, immunosuppressant medications like azothioprine, cyclosporin, tacrolimus, and methotrexate have been shown to control ocular inflammation and to help preserve vision in iritis. This was a case of iritis. Let's just review for the listeners. Do you have a particular list or mnemonic for the acute red eye in the emergency department? If you progress anatomically through the eye, you can come up with all your differential for anything. So for the the red eye, I mean, what are the structures that are anterior in your globe that can be red? Right? You've got conjunctival vessels. You've got scleral vessels, perilimbal vessels. So the differential is really going to be based on that. So you've got conjunctivitis, which has a long list of causes, infectious, irritant, allergic. You've got scleritis and uveitis. I always get mixed up personally between scleritis, episcleritis, and uveitis. Can you just give us the bare take-home of how to distinguish between scleritis and episcleritis and uveitis and conjunctivitis? Yeah, well, I think conjunctivitis is the easiest one to, to take off that list because it's really the only one that causes predominantly that anterior scratchy feeling and, and the only one that's really going to have a substantial eye discharge. And on physical exam, this is, where, again, where the slit lamp is much more valuable. You can actually tell, if you look at the, the, the white part of the eye, which is conjunctiva, see-through conjunctiva overlying white sclera. You can actually see where the vessels are inflamed. If they're really, really superficial, that's conjunctiva. And as you look, and it's deeper, and it looks kind of like a, to me, a collection of tangled tree branches, and if it's really deep into the forest, deep into the white, and they're inflamed down there, well, those are scleral vessels. And uveitis, or anterior uveitis, where the inflammation is around the perilimbal area, you're going to have scleral and even potentially conjunctival conjunctival vessels inflamed, but it's going to be where they're inflamed on the surface of the eye as opposed to the depth. Dr. Perferis, do you have anything to add in terms of the key features of differentiating scleritis, episcleritis, and uveitis? One uh, thing that you can do to differentiate episcleritis from scleritis um, is uh, installing... Uh, some phenylephrine drops. So if you if you put some phenylephrine drops and the uh, the vessels blanch, that usually means that it's it's episcleritis, which is a more benign diagnosis. And if they don't blanch, then uh, it's more likely to be scleritis, which is a diagnosis which has a higher morbidity. So those were our two cases for non-traumatic acute painful red eye in the emergency department. Next, we're going to have Doctor Porphyrus go through a great case with us of a patient with painless red eyes. We have a two-year-old boy who was referred from a walk-in clinic for a septic workup. 
the chief complaint from the mother was a fever of 39.5 for the last four days, despite taking acetaminophen every four hours. The patient was seen twice in a walk-in clinic in the last three days and put on amoxicillin for a presumed strep throat. Mother reports that her son had had red eyes with no discharge. She says that her son's lids were easily opened when the boy woke up in the morning, and she reports no obvious foreign body. She also reports that he has developed a red rash all over his body and has been increasingly irritable over the last two days. Oral intake has been adequate with normal urine output and normal bowel movements. There's no history of recent travel and all immunizations, including varicella, meningate, and pneumococcus vaccines are all up to date. There's no known contacts. On exam, the child is very irritable, but alert, well hydrated, and in no respiratory distress. Vital signs are a heart rate of 130, blood pressure of 90 over 60, respiratory rate of 26, and a temperature of 40.0. The tympanic membranes appear normal. The pharynx is red with no exudate. The neck exam reveals enlarged cervical lymph nodes. The rash is a nonspecific erythematous mucopapular rash that blanches. That's all over his body. And his chest is clear with no murmur. Abdomen is soft and non-tender, and there's no organomegaly. So, Dr. Perfiris, at this point, what would your considerations be in terms of the diagnosis? Well, basically, you have a two-year-old with a four-day history of a high fever. Sounds like a, like a viral respiratory tract infection symptoms and a rash with red eyes. So the, the differential for this is huge. It could be your usual sort of infectious causes. It could be viral. It could be adenovirus. It could be rhinovirus. It could be mono. It could be uh, Coxsackie virus, you know, your typical hand, foot, and mouth disease. It could be more serious. It could be a bacterial cause uh, like, uh, like scarlet fever from, from strep throat or uh, staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome or toxic shock syndrome in, in the older age groups. It can also be from drug reactions, so you can have you know, a bad reaction to any of the drugs, like a bad anaphylactic or allergic reaction. It could be erythema multiforme major, uh, which is uh, another name for the Stephen Johnson syndrome. It could be autoimmune, things like juvenile rheumatoid arthritis pop into mind. And then there's sort of the idiopathic causes, Kawasaki's disease. Okay, so in this case, the lab work was sent. The CBC showed a normal white blood cell count and a normal hemoglobin, Uh, with platelets of 900,000. The urinalysis showed 15 white blood cells per high-powered field uh, with no bacteria, and that was a catheterized urine. Blood and urine cultures were sent. Now, on a physical exam, is there anything else you would want to look for at this point? I'll take a look inside the mouth. Is there anything going on uh, inside the mouth? Any ulcers in the mouth, Uh, strawberry tongue, redness of the lips, fissured lips? And then I would look at the extremities and see if there's anything. Is there a rash on the fingertips? Is there a red rash on the, on the hands and the feet? Are there vesicles on the hand and the feet? Is there desquamation on the hands or the feet? What other lab work would you want besides the usual CBC, urine, and, and cultures? I'd probably ask for an ESR and a CRP. Those are sort of uh, very nonspecific but good uh, tests for inflammation. Um, I would ask for liver function tests, AST, ALT. So an ESR was ordered on this patient, and it came back as 90. Uh, a chest x-ray was also ordered. It showed some peribronchial cuffing and some increased interstitial markings. 
on further physical examination, there were no specific oral findings and no extremity findings, no edema or, or redness or, or vesicles on, uh, on the extremities. In this case, a presumptive diagnosis of Kawasaki's disease was made, an echocardiogram was ordered, and the patient was referred to pediatrics for ongoing management. So, Dr. Perfiris, could you just tell us a little bit about Kawasaki's disease, how we can diagnose it, and why it's important for EM docs to diagnose it in a timely manner? Kawasaki's disease is an acute vasculitis of unknown uh, etiology, affecting mainly kids uh, under five. And the major problem is that, is that it, it can lead to coronary artery aneurysms if not treated acutely, which, is, which would become sort of the number one cause of acquired heart disease in, in Canada and in the United States. What are the diagnostic criteria for Kawasaki? To make a, a diagnosis of uh, Kawasaki's uh, disease, sort of the full spectrum, you need to have fever over 39 for at least five days, and then four out of the five following criteria. So one is conjunctivitis, uh, and the conjunctivitis tends to be bilateral and non-exudative, so there's usually no discharge. Number two is a sort of polymorphous body rash. It could be maculopapular, it could be auricarial all over the body. Number three are uh, lip and mouth or oral changes, typically fissured red lips or, or strawberry tongue as, as seen as in scarlet fever. Number four, cervical lymphadenopathy. It tends to be unilateral. The actual criteria says you need to have at least one cervical node of at least 1.5 centimeters. And the last criteria are extremity changes. So usually in the hands and the feet, you'll get erythema, uh, usually painful erythema, which eventually leads to desquamation. But that usually happens later on in the course, uh, even up to two or three weeks later. And I understand that part of diagnosing Kawasaki's is excluding alternate diagnoses. In this case, the patient had three of the five diagnostic criteria and had fever for only four days. You know, we often see patients who have a fever for two or three days, high fever, and they have some of the features of Kawasaki disease. Can you still make the diagnosis of Kawasaki's disease and initiate treatment when they haven't had the full five days of fever and might not fulfill all the diagnostic criteria? I mean, intuitively, it doesn't make much sense to have to wait for five days before starting treatment and saying, okay, now the patient has Kawasaki's. Well, there's this sort of concept now of an incomplete Kawasaki syndrome, which is uh, in, the, in the sort of the pediatric literature. Uh, and it does make sense that even if you don't have the, the, the symptoms for five days, if you have them for even three, three or four days, and you have, so you basically have fever for three or four days and, and three or four of the criteria, your, your next step would be to do an echocardiogram. And if you do see evidence of the coronary artery aneurysms, then you can actually make the diagnosis of, of Kawasaki's disease. I see. Okay. And before you, you get an echo, does the blood work help you out at all in terms of your algorithm of if you have a patient with incomplete Kawasaki, does the blood work help you make the diagnosis or refute the diagnosis? Things that would make you think of the diagnosis more are elevated ESR or CRP, elevated white blood cell count, elevated platelets, uh, elevated liver function tests, especially the AST and the ALT. Uh, you can find uh, what's called a sterile pyuria, where you'll see white blood cells in the urine, but no bacteria. And sometimes you'll see a normochromic, normocytic anemia, um, as well as a hyponatremia. So obviously you're not going to have all those things, but if, the more of those things you have, the more likely it is to be Kawasaki's.
I see. So we've gone over what the diagnostic criteria are and some of the lab findings and what incomplete Kawasaki's is. What kind of clinical characteristics would help us exclude the diagnosis of Kawasaki's? In other words, what findings on the physical would go against Kawasaki's? If there's any discharge in the eyes, so usually the conjunctivitis uh, should be non-purulent, non-exudative. If you see discharge in the back of the throat or you see intraoral lesions like, like vesicles, that would make it more likely to be something else. So if you, if you look and you see there's vesicles in the mouth and the hands and the feet, then you have your diagnosis of, sort of Coxsackie virus, hand, foot, and mouth disease. If there are any bullae or vesicles on any of the, of the rash, either on the hands or, or, the, or the body, that typically does not happen with Kawasaki's and will sort of help you exclude it. And also if you have lymph nodes everywhere, so if you have generalized lymphadenopathy, not just in the neck, uh, so you have it, uh, you know, bilateral cervical lymphadenopathy, axillary lymphadenopathy, groin lymphadenopathy, that pretty much excludes Kawasaki's, which is typically unilateral um, and, uh, and only in the neck. In particular, Kawasaki's seems to overlap with measles. That's sometimes difficult to distinguish. We don't see measles that often because most kids are, are immunized. But how would you distinguish Kawasaki's disease from measles? One of my pediatric professors told me an easy way to remember the rash of measles is like a, a child having a, a bucket of red paint dumped on them over their head. So typically it starts in their, in their face, in their, in their head, and it spreads downwards. So from the head to the trunk into the legs. Uh, so it moves from head to toe, as opposed to Kawasaki's, which actually starts, starts centrally. So it usually starts in the trunk and it works its way out to the peripheries, to the arms and the, and the feet. There was one case I can remember where the patient actually presented, again, just sort of like the glaucoma with abdominal pain and vomiting. That was the chief complaint. And initially, you know, because the patient was so irritable and it was hard to get a good abdominal exam, they were wondering whether it could be an acute abdomen from appendicitis or something like that. And so it really took, you know, the patient had to be admitted and then three days later, they, uh, they sorted it all out and it ended up being Kawasaki's. Vasculitis in general, I mean, you end up getting a symptom that, is, that arises from the organ that is most symptomatic with the vasculitis. And we confuse it that that organ itself is dysfunctional. We don't think that maybe it's, it's something more diffuse. Here, Dr. Porphyrus is just going to review some of the more subtle clinical findings of Kawasaki's disease. The fever tends to be quite high, so we're talking in the range of sort of over 39.5 to the 40 range, uh, and it's not usually very responsive to the antipyretics like Tylenol or, or, or ibuprofen. But the children are, tend to be very irritable. They're not sort of the usual, you know, you know some kids with viral illnesses will, will sit there and they'll be happy and they'll be playful and they look well. Uh, kids with Kawasaki's look sick and they look toxic. So that's another clue to, uh, to this diagnosis. One additional sort of thing on the physical exam is you can... Look in the anus, and if you see sort of perianal redness, um, you know, that's usually sort of associated with, with strep or staph infections, but if you see this in conjunction with the other symptoms, this will also suggest Kawasaki syndrome. Can you just review for us why we should be getting an echo early in these cases? If you fulfill all the criteria for Kawasaki's disease, uh, you can go ahead and start treatment, uh, which involves high-dose aspirin and uh, IV immunoglobulin. The trouble is when you don't have all the criteria and you're suspecting it, so you have this sort of incomplete Kawasaki syndrome, what do you do there? If you do some of the blood tests that we talked about earlier and you have some positives, what most people would do is order a stat echo and see if they actually have aneurysms. If you have any aneurysms, that's an indication for going ahead and treating, even if you have incomplete Kawasaki's. And the reason is that if you treat them before day 10 of illness, 
your chance of developing these aneurysms is, is less than uh, 5%, as opposed to if you don't treat them, their chance of getting a coronary artery aneurysm is anywhere between 15 and 25%, which is a big difference. So I guess the bottom line here is if you've got the complete Kawasaki's, the patient should be started on, on high-dose aspirin in the emergency department, and the pediatrician should be called for starting IVIG. If it's incomplete, then you want to look at the blood work. Uh, if the blood work is very convincing, then you can go ahead and start the treatment. If, you're not, if the blood work isn't so convincing, then you order a stat echo. And if that shows any coronary abnormalities consistent with Kawasaki's disease, then that's when you'd start treatment right away as well. The other thing is you had mentioned at the beginning that it tends to happen in kids under five. There was a case a few years ago where the kid was seven years old and there was this whole big argument as to whether kids at seven could have Kawasaki's. It turned out this kid did have Kawasaki's. Um, so just to remember that, again, the st strict definition of under five, there are lots of case cases of uh, patients over five getting Kawasaki's as well. Here's a quick review of Kawasaki's disease. It's a disease where there's systemic inflammation of mucosal surfaces, generally in patients between 0 and 5 years old. It's the leading cause of acquired heart disease in developed countries and children. The strict diagnostic criteria for full Kawasaki's is a fever of greater than 39 for 5 days, plus 4 of any of the following 5 features. 1. Extremity changes like edema, erythema, and desquamation. 2. Rash. 3. Conjunctivitis, 4. Lip and oral changes, and 5. Cervical lymphadenopathy. Also part of the diagnostic criteria is exclusion of alternate diagnoses. Incomplete Kawasaki's disease refers to patients who don't fulfill the classic criteria of at least 4 or 5 findings. Incomplete Kawasaki's is actually more common in children younger than 1 year old, so it makes it even more challenging. And paradoxically, the rate of coronary artery aneurysms, if left untreated, is higher in these patients. Some key clinical characteristics that would help you exclude the diagnosis of Kawasaki's are exudative conjunctivitis or pharyngitis, discrete intraoral lesions like vesicles, a bullous or vesicular rash, and generalized lymphadenopathy. Some of the more subtle clues to Kawasaki's disease are that the fever is minimally responsive to antipyretics, the patients are almost always extremely irritable, they often have perianal erythema, the lymphadenopathy is usually unilateral, and sometimes the swelling or erythema of the hands and feet are characterized by a sharp demarcation at the ankles and wrists. Remember that the classic peeling of the fingers and toes or the desquamation is usually a very late finding and you usually won't see that in the patient in the emergency department. Kawasaki's is treated with high-dose ASA and IV immune globulin. So remember that not all presentations of painless red eye are benign. Painless conjunctivitis can be a sign of a variety of systemic autoimmune diseases, so always ask about systemic symptoms for patients who present with a red eye. Next in this episode, we're going to move on from the red eye to the non-red eye, and we're going to talk about painless loss of vision.
Let's go on to our third category of patient, and that is the patient with painless loss of vision. So this is the case. We have a 70-year-old woman who presents to your emergency department at 3 a.m. with a chief complaint of acute painless loss of vision. She reports having been feeling weak, dizzy, and feverish for about six weeks with a mild occipital headache. She had had a worsening appetite and as a result has lost about 5 to 10 pounds. The day prior to her emergency room visit, she reports having a fleeting loss of vision in the left visual field for a few seconds while she was watching TV. Today, about one hour prior to her ED visit, she was in the car being driven to the shopping mall by her daughter when she went completely blind in her left eye. When asked further about her dizziness, she reports having intermittent diplopia and blurry vision with no lightheadedness or vertigo. She denies any trauma, neck, face, or eye pain. She denies nausea or vomiting and has no speech difficulty or lateralizing limb weakness or paresthesias. At this point, what kind of diagnoses are you entertaining here and what else would you like to ask this lady? It's helpful that the, the timing of the episode because there's really only one or two things in the human body that can have that drastic a change that quickly. And most of them are vascular. So when somebody, when somebody describes vision loss over, gradually over weeks or months, well, there's a longer list, but if somebody's got vision loss over a couple of seconds, it's a really only vascular pathology that can do that. So already you're concentrating on the, the vascularity that perfuses the structures that we need to see. So first and foremost, you want to find out, am I dealing with the perfusion of the, the globe itself, or is this a neurologic event? And sometimes those two things, I think, mix. Uh, and it can be difficult to assess, is this a, a stroke and there's a part of the brain that's getting hypoperfused, or is it is the eyeball itself? So what are the main eye diagnoses that you consider in patients with an acute painless loss of vision? Well, I think uh, you can think of them as pre-retinal or retinal. So pre-retinal is really anything that can suddenly obstruct photons from entering your light and hitting your retina. I think the commonest one we see certainly in this age group is a, a posterior vitreous detachment with a showering of cellular debris into your vitreous chamber. So a vitreous hemorrhage would be an example. So that's somebody who suddenly gets a big shower of floaters, some of which are very large and dark. The differential here though that helps is people who get floaters or other cellular debris in their vitreous if you ask them in the right way, they can actually see through them. They describe them as cobwebs. They want to brush them away. It's like an eyelash on their glasses. But they, they still, light can transmit through them. They can still see through them. Whereas the retinal causes, and here we're talking about either retinal detachment, which is painless and loss of vision, or an ischemic event to your retina. You can't see through them. That's that's essentially dead tissue, and it's not trying to, you have a, an actual field deficit as opposed to a floater. So I, I use that all the time to help differentiate where anatomically I'm looking for the pathology. Can you see through it, or is it a, a frank field deficit? On further history, this woman does have cardiovascular risk factors, including hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, and she's a 50-pack year smoker. She also has reported that she has been having aching and stiffness in the proximal extremities and torso that seems to be worse in the morning. She also reports having jaw claudication and pain in the jaw and tongue. 
Moving on to physical exam, she's a well-appearing woman lying in the stretcher and alert. Her vital signs are normal except for a temperature of 38.0. Her head and neck exam reveal a tender scalp and a bruit in the right carotid. Cardiovascular examination is otherwise normal with no murmurs. Her neck is supple. Her eye exam reveals a visual acuity that's limited to light perception only in her left eye and normal in the right eye. She has a left visual field cut owing to her limited visual acuity in the left eye. Pupils are equal and reactive and extraocular movements are normal. The anterior segment appears normal under slit lamp. The red reflex is normal and fundoscopy reveals an edematous pale gray-white appearing retina with no hemorrhages. Neurologic exam is otherwise normal, including the rest of the cranial nerves and the cerebellar tests. So what do you think at this point would be the most likely cause of this painless loss of vision? Well, she's got substantial features of both of the two most likely scenarios. First of all, you can't forget the fact that the number one cause of death on this planet is uh, thromboembolic disease to your heart or your brain. And so, although we'll talk in a second about some of her other features, she's at risk for this being essentially a, a stroke to the eye. And the majority of those are going to arise off plaques in your carotid body or from atrial fib and you detach a clot and, and, uh, and break it off and it happens to embolize to that specific artery. So um, that is high and wide differential, which would cause, in this case, a central retinal artery occlusion by that clot. However, obviously, there's a number of features here that scream out for temporal arteritis. So it seems to be, if you miss the diagnosis in this patient, you're not going to get it in any real patient because this is about a slam dunk diagnosis, I think, as you can get. Unfortunately, I think the majority of patients with temporal arteritis much like when we see patients with appendicitis, don't present classically like they do in the textbook. And they may only have a few of these features. So here, when we talk about temporal arteritis, it's a vasculitis, once again, that is presumed to be autoimmune and predominantly affects vessels in and around the branches of your internal carotid. So you've got your ophthalmic and retinal arteries, uh, your temporal arteries, it's preceded, presumably, by all the features of PMR, polymyalgia rheumatica. So sometimes, certainly in the cases I've seen, you don't get all of the combination of features that this patient has. You might only have a description of some discomfort in the, the, the pelvis and the shoulder uh, girdle when you stand or when you push open a door that's been brewing. It's frequently written off as old age. And because it's so insidious and builds over a few months, patients may not even notice it. So you really have to probe for that. But PMR doesn't have to precede temporal arteritis. Some people, officially, you can just jump the PMR features and go right to temporal arteritis. And there you're going to have a number of the features described. I think the commonest is going to be headache, or what is described as headache, but essentially is pain and tenderness around the temple and the scalp structures, jaw claudication. Sure, it exists. A few people have it, but it's not the sine qua non. And then here we're talking about somebody who would have the sudden loss of vision because of a clot dispatched off their ophthalmic or retinal artery. Although the majority of people who get visual change from temporal arteritis, it's not the detachment of a clot. 
it's because of the gradual inflammation over weeks and months of the vessels that supply the eye, you get kind of a chronic neuropathic change in the optic nerve. And that's, they start to have more peripheral vision loss and it's very gradual. So you've got to be aware that not all temporal arteritis vision change is the amaurosis fugax or permanent sudden vision loss. A lot of it is gradual. Okay, so they can have a variety of visual symptoms. They can have, like this woman had uh, some fleeting uh, visual symptoms before. They can have diplopia. They can have some blurry vision that just lasts for a short time. And it's almost like a like a sentinel bleed for a subarachnoid where you can have or a TIA preceding a huge stroke yeah. um, is you can have these sort of warning visual symptoms and then they can just suddenly lose their vision like in this case. Yeah, and I think it's an example of a disease where the emergency physician sees it much different than the ophthalmologist does. The ophthalmologist will say that it's a huge number. It's around 15 or 20 percent of vision loss in the elderly, they attribute in some part to temporal arteritis, but they're seeing them because of a chronic gradual vision loss. Uh, we see the disease as this sudden painless loss of vision and, oh, you because you're aware of it, you happen to pursue a history of temporal arteritis underneath. So keep in mind that a lot of patients who present with visual changes, it's, it's, as you mentioned, it might just be the uh, the straw that broke the camel's back that brought them in, but they probably had several months of subacute vision change as well. Okay. So while the most common cause of visual changes in temporal arteritis is directly from the vasculitis and inflammation around the optic nerve, a minority of patients will have this sudden uh, loss of vision that is a result of central retinal artery occlusion. Right. Let's just review for the listeners what the diagnostic criteria for temporal arteritis are? Whenever you see a consensus document, it means there's no consensus. So <laughs> I think temporal arteritis fits that. So the American College of Rheumatology defines it as uh, people with age over 50, uh, new headache, abnormalities of the temporal artery, it being tender or pulseless, an ESR greater than 50, and a positive result from the temporal artery biopsy. And if you have three of the five of these criteria, that has a sensitivity of 93% and a specificity of 91%. However, if you crack open any internal medicine textbook, they will say that any one of those features may be absent. So really, when you have these consensus documents that define a disease, their main role is predominantly for research, so that when people get entered into research studies, it's to confirm that they do or do not have that disease. But as we all know, sitting around this table, a lot of uh, patients don't present typically. So you can have, and it's well documented, that you can have temporal arteritis and an ESR of 20. If the features, again, are present, you shouldn't withhold treatment for concern that somebody didn't meet some numeric criteria of diagnosis. If the shoe fits, where? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you the number of cases I've had where I say, I really think this patient has temporal arteritis. The ESR is 35 right. in an elderly person, right. and as soon as I say that ESR number, I, I get shut down. I know. It's, uh, uh, it's should a, not be the way. Yeah, so there, there are definitely cases, um, not just a few, of temporal arteritis with a normal ESR. Keep in mind, some of these patients also have other 
serum markers and, and blood work abnormalities too, like thrombocytosis. Platelets are an acute phase reactant, and, and they can frequently be elevated in this kind of a scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, some patients are anemic. As you mentioned, some patients have fever if it's really advanced disease. It is a vasculitis. So there are other tests to think about aside from the, the be-all and end-all ESR that I think we probably place too much emphasis on. There was one study that I, that I read about that showed that a combination of ESR and CRP has almost 100% sensitivity mm-hmm. for ruling out temporal arteritis. If both of those are perfectly normal, then that pretty much rules out the diagnosis. Well, I, again, just as we spoke about, I'd be hesitant to rest this diagnosis, that is clinical diagnosis, on a single investigative modality and to chuck out all of the other clinical suspicion. So if you suspect temporal arteritis based on your history, physical, and and your ESR and or CRP, um, they might have anemia, they might have some thrombocytosis, do you start treatment right away in the emergency department? Do you get an ultrasound? How do you go about it? I mean, the trouble that I run into quite often is, say, I think this patient has temporal arteritis, they need a temporal artery, artery biopsy. And the temporal artery biopsy will happen maybe in three days. Because by the time you get you know, the surgeon or whoever's going to be doing it to agree to do it and then book them in, it, it takes some time. I guess the first question is, do you find any use in doing ultrasound for these cases? Do you just treat on spec? What's your, your, what's your approach? Well, I think like any other vascular catastrophe, you can't wait for the imaging or confirmatory test before you initiate treatment because the consequences of waiting are so high. So step one, two, and three is setting up the IV, initiating the IV, and giving the IV steroid because we're trying to prevent catastrophic vision loss. So that is the mainstay of treatment. I think what you're talking about with ultrasound, you know, there's been some discussion in the literature, can you do an ultrasound looking for edema around your temporal artery? As a, as, instead of actually biopsying the artery. Well, I would think maybe five to ten years from now there may be enough data to support that. Right now, I really don't think it's standard of care. It may help you in your clinical qualitative decision-making, but I don't think that the data are there yet that that can begin to supplant the diagnosis of temporal arteritis based on biopsy. So you're right, and the biopsy usually happens after the person's temporal artery is the inflammation settled down from the three or four days of steroid they've required before they get the biopsy. But it still needs to be initiated. There is little downside to initiating a dose of steroids. If it turns out that you're wrong, well, the patient got a dose of steroids and are almost certainly no worse off. Okay. So the patients with ophthalmologic uh, manifestations of the temporal arteritis who use IV steroids... For patients without eye symptoms, in those patients, can you get away with PO? Probably. It's interesting that when you compare it to some of the other things we do in emergency medicine where, for instance, COPD exacerbation and asthma exacerbation, where the onset of effect from IV versus PO steroids is probably identical, and yet we haven't let go of that concept, so you still need to give IV steroids because that's the standard of care, although it wouldn't surprise me in the least you probably could give PO steroids if IV wasn't imminently available and probably have the exact same outcome. I think the take-home message is not necessarily the root, is, is just getting the steroids in early to prevent catastrophe. 
and most steroids are going to start kicking in at 8 to 12 hours after administration. What are the odds that somebody who has not who has temporal arteritis without visual change in the next 12 hours might have? I don't know. You may save an hour or two by IV, but it's highly unlikely it would have any impact. So that's about temporal arteritis. In in this case, the patient has quite a few features of central retinal artery occlusion. Can we just go over the key clinical features of, of this disease? Sure. Well, it's uh, you know it's a stroke of your retina essentially, and the presentation is going to be the same whether that clot is embolized from your atrium, whether it's a clot flying off your carotid, whether it's a clot flying off your inflamed ophthalmic artery from temporal arteritis. If, if your visual change is from an occlusion of your retinal artery, the presentation is going to be the same. Whether or not you have other features of the disease is left for the eMERGE physician to, to sort out. So that feature is sudden painless vision loss. There's some slight variation because anatomically people are built differently. Many people will have a complete vision loss, barely even to light dark over all aspects of their field. Some people, because the perfusion of their fovea is different, uh, in other words, the, the, the vessel that supplies your fovea is not necessarily your retinal artery in, in a small subset of patients. Some people retain central vision. Uh, and it's the periphery of their vision that is lost, but they retain some central vision. So you've got to be aware. And, and I think this is a really important point. People are left-handed and right-handed, left-footed and right-footed. People are also left-eyed and right-eyed. And I've seen a number of times patients who present, and they have a fairly nondescript visual change, but when you go to check, they have maybe light-dark sensation, but for whatever reason, the patient didn't notice it that much because they're predominantly one-eyed or the other. So people who have peripheral vision loss in the non-dominant eye are occasionally not that bothered by it. And it's only once you cover up their dominant eye, they're struck by how little they can see. Hmm. So just because a patient's not all that, and they say, no, no, it looks a little funny, you've really got to check their monocular vision. And it's amazing. Sometimes people in that, you can have 2,400 vision, and the patient didn't really notice. In terms of on the physical exam, when you look at the retina, what are the classic findings of a central retinal artery occlusion? Sure. Well, so on physical exam, to take even one step back, mm-hmm. you're going to be looking at acuity. You're going to be looking at fields. And as mentioned, the, 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 the visual loss is going to be most prominent is the peripheral vision. When you look at the, uh, the retina, what you're going to see is a blanched, non-perfused retina. It's white and therefore somewhat see-through. And what it allows you to do is see the fovea, which is a pigmented structure underneath your retina. But if your retina is not perfused, the retina kind of becomes invisible in a way. And you can see that underlying what's called the cherry red spot. It's lateral to your optic disc. But if that's apparent, really what that's saying is normally you wouldn't be able to see it because the structures around it are perfused and pink and therefore don't contrast the, uh, the fovea. But when they're blanched, the fovea is allowed to stand out. So it's the classic appearance is a blanched white retina and a uh, cherry red spot. Okay. And the, this cherry red spot, which I understand is pathognomonic for a central retinal artery occlusion, for emergency doctors, are they sort of expected to actually pick these up? I mean, do we are they relatively easy to see? Consider the patient, right? You've got the majority of these patients are elderly, which means they've probably got cataracts. And their uh, pupils are probably somewhat constricted. 
Uh, so you're already faced with a difficult fundos- fundoscopic exam. Mm-hmm. And in these scenarios, you do have to move quickly. You've got about 90 minutes before you're going to incur prone and damage to your retina to try and restore some form of perfusion. So it's not a patient you want to dilate and come back half an hour later and look in their eye. Sure, if you can see it, great. But it is one of these diseases where I think the history, sudden painless vision loss over a a matter of seconds, that alone should prompt you to initiate uh, some of the treatment modalities. And sometimes your physical exam is going to be limited to field testing. Do they have an RAPD? Because these people are going to have a big-time RAPD. Relative afferent pupillary defect. Sorry, yeah, correct. Yeah. Relative afferent pupillary defect. Okay. Uh, so the key features then are an abrupt painless loss of vision, typically occurs in the middle of the night where their visual acuity is limited to often light perception or counting fingers, and often their central vision can be spared, that they have an afferent pupillary defect, um, and that if you can't get a good fundoscopic examination if it's often washed out sort of a pale gray color and if you're lucky enough to see that cherry red spot then you've clinched the diagnosis exactly okay great now sometimes people get mixed up between central retinal artery occlusion and central retinal vein occlusion right can you just give us the quick rundown of of how we differentiate those sure i think the analogy is a crao an artery occlusion is like a stroke to the eye there's no perfusion and tissue that has a high metabolic rate, such as your retina, is within a few seconds is going to have changes. Uh, a servo or central retinal vein occlusion is like a DVT of the eye. And there you've got vascular engorgement on the venous side. They too can have visual change. It tends to be more gradual. And the fundoscopic exam is telltale. It's slam dunk. It looks like a big, angry, red, stormy eye, as they say. It looks like you would think a DVT of your retina would look like. Vascular engorgement, hyperemic. Right, that's the blood and thunder. Blood and thunder, as they say. Okay, so you see retinal hemorrhages. The central retinal vein occlusion isn't quite the emergency that a central retinal artery occlusion is. Right, exactly the same as uh, when we think about any ischemic part of your body. Seconds count, whether it's your heart, your brain, an ischemic limb. Whereas vascular engorgement on the venous side of your limb, of your DVT, well, you know, we'll get around to it. But it's not, you're not counting uh, morbidity and mortality in seconds and minutes. With central retinal artery occlusion being probably the most emergent of non-traumatic eye emergencies where irreversible vision loss can happen just after a few hours of occluded blood flow, what can the emergency doc do to maximize the chances of saving the vision? You don't have a a huge number of tools in your toolbox. That's the problem. Ideally, I mean, the the goal is to restore blood flow and remove that obstruction by whatever means you can. Traditionally, you've got a few things to undertake. One is just vigorous massage of the eyeball, unless there's a contraindication. The thinking being that physical compression and release of your eye is going to shimmy that clot downstream and either have it wash up completely or at least convert it to a branch retinal artery occlusion so that only a quarter of your retina is is affected instead of all of it. You want to give antiplatelet agents, uh, aspirin or or another if aspirin is contraindicated. Although, let's face it, that may kick in in an hour or two to prevent reaccumulation of platelets, but it's not going to dissolve that clot there. Uh, Other things that you 
that are listed, you want to try and decrease intraocular pressure. It's going to be the same things that you consider doing during uh, glaucoma. Uh, so timolol and acetazolamide, the, the thinking being that if you decrease intraocular pressure through the starling resistor, you're going to be increasing the uh, pressure that you can perfuse your art artery with on the other side. And then lastly, there's always this debate about whether or not to uh, give thrombolytic agents. I don't think the literature is there yet, again, for you to dive in. I think it's reasonable to think of, uh, on a case-by-case -case basis, the benefits and contraindications for giving clot-busting agent, right? It's going to depend on what your agent is, the patient, uh, their comorbidities, their blood pressure, what was their visual acuity before. So it's going to be a, a weighted decision. It's, it's in your toolbox, but it shouldn't be thought of as an immediate tool the way it is in other kind of more well-studied pathologies such as uh, myocardial infarction or stroke. Right. So there has been a few small studies done on systemic TPA and uh, also intra-arterial TPA. Sure. This is something you would be talking to your ophthalmologist about. The one other thing that I've heard of in terms of treatment of this is is breathing into a paper bag. Right. We're uh, really slick emergency physicians here. <laughs> I think Here's you've just stroked bag. out your eye. Here's a paper bag to well, breathe into. Well, <laughs> I know. It sounds so, so, well, interesting that more capitalistic ventures have identified that that looks silly and they come out with carbon dioxide oxygen mixes which are thousands of dollars but have the exact same effect the idea is if you increase the inhaled amount of carbon dioxide you cause some response uh, of arterial vasodilation what you've really got to do is call the ophthalmologist because they can do something called paracentesis where they basically stick a needle in your eye suck out a little fluid in an attempt to rapidly and quickly decrease your intraocular pressure with the same effect as we described. Hopefully doing that, you can either dislodge the clot or increase the perfusion pressure of the arteries. I'd like to emphasize some important points about temporal arteritis. While there's a whole long list of possible signs and symptoms of temporal arteritis, we should be asking ourselves, what are the most predictive signs and symptoms? A meta-analysis in 2002 showed that the only two historical features that significantly increased the likelihood of temporal arteritis were jaw claudication and diplopia. It also showed that the most predictive physical exam finding of temporal arteritis is beating, prominence, or tenderness of the temporal artery. What do we need to know about the common symptoms of temporal arteritis? There are two things that I'd like to point out. One is that the headache is not always temporal in location, but often is occipital. Second, scalp tenderness is often marked with hyperesthesia and hypersensitivity, similar to what we see in patients with migraines. I also want to emphasize that many patients with temporal arteritis have vestibular dysfunction and hearing impairment at the time of presentation. So if you get an old lady who presents as a weak and dizzy, who also complains of headache, has difficulty hearing your questions, and is falling over when you try and get them to walk, then think of temporal arteritis and ask about jaw claudication, diplopia, and make sure to palpate the temporal arteries. What about the ESR and CRP? How useful are they in diagnosing temporal arteritis? How should we be using and interpreting ESR and CRP in patients who we suspect have the disease?
Before we get into how we should interpret ESR in the setting of suspected temporal arteritis, we need to be clear on what a normal ESR is. A normal ESR value depends on the age of the patient, so you can't just go with what your lab cutoff is. There's a simple calculation which can help us out with this. A normal ESR equals age divided by 2 for men, and for women, it's age plus 10 divided by 2. So if you suspect temporal arteritis in an 80-year-old woman, then a normal ESR for her would be 80 plus 10 divided by 2, which is 45. Now how about the sensitivity of ESR for temporal arteritis? An ESR of over 50 has a sensitivity of only 85% for temporal arteritis. In fact, the ESR is completely normal in about 5% of biopsy-proven cases. So a low ESR does not rule out temporal arteritis, and steroids should not be withheld based on an ESR value, especially since it has been shown that the earlier you start steroids, the greater the chance of saving the patient's vision. Just to drive home the point that ESR has a poor predictive value for temporal arteritis, it has been shown that an ESR of greater than 100 is less predictive of temporal arteritis than signs and symptoms like jaw claudication, diplopia, or tenderness of the temporal artery. Now what about the C-reactive protein? Is it better than ESR? Well, yes it is. CRP has a higher sensitivity than ESR, but again, there has been many case reports of patients with a normal CRP and a positive biopsy for temporal arteritis. So you might ask, if ESR has a pretty good sensitivity and CRP has even a better sensitivity, then what about combining the two? The combination of a normal ESR and a normal CRP has a sensitivity in some studies as high as 99%. So effectively, this should almost rule out the diagnosis. But just like Dr. Kingsley said, if you feel very strongly that a patient has got temporal arteritis based on their presentation, then you should still assume that they have the diagnosis and start treatment. So let's say you're dealing with a case of temporal arteritis. How soon do you need to start steroids in these patients? Well, it's been shown that if treatment with steroids is initiated within 24 hours of visual symptoms, then visual improvement is seen in about 60% of patients compared with about 5% of patients if it's delayed longer than 24 hours. In other words, start treatment ASAP in the emergency department. For patients with visual symptoms, IV steroids should be started immediately and continued for three days, while oral prednisone is acceptable for those patients without any clear ocular manifestations. In summary, any patient over 50 with a headache, visual changes, or vertebral basilar symptoms needs temporal arteritis on their differential diagnosis. Temporal arteritis presents in many weird and wonderful ways. Some patients have systemic manifestations like headache, neck pain, jaw claudication, abnormal temporal arteries, or general malaise, and some have ocular, and some have ocular manifestations like eye pain, diplopia, or visual loss. Still others have a mixture of these, and some even have occult presentations. So you need to use the entire clinical picture as well as the lab test for guidance when trying to nail down this diagnosis. A low ESR cannot rule out temporal arteritis, so it's important that steroids not be withheld based on an ESR value if the diagnosis is suspected, especially since it's been shown that the early initiation of steroids substantially reduces the risk of blindness in these patients. So that's temporal arteritis. How about central retinal artery occlusion, which the woman in this case had as a result of her temporal arteritis? Think of CRAO as an ischemic stroke of the retina. 
Time is of the essence, and the same cardiovascular risk factors apply. The symptoms can be intermittent, like a TIA, or stuttering, like a crescendo TIA. Many patients have carotid artery disease, which is the most common source of emboli to the retinal artery. In young patients, just like in any TIA or stroke, you should be thinking about cardioembolic causes. So patients with CRAO need workups just like patients with an ischemic stroke, including carotid dopplers and possibly a cardiac echo. In the ED, if you suspect a diagnosis based on a sudden painless loss of vision in a patient with cardiovascular risk factors, an afferent pupillary defect and a good dilated eye exam showing an edematous pale central retina and possibly a cherry red spot, then you need to get busy with massaging the globe, having the patient rebreathe into a paper bag for 10 minutes each hour, decreasing the IOP with timolol, acetazolamide, and mannitol, and getting optho in quickly for consideration of TPA. There has been a lot of talk in the literature recently about the use of ED ultrasound in diagnosing a whole array of posterior segment eye disease. Let's just go over for the listeners what the utility of ED ultrasound for eye disease is in the emergency department. We have an ultrasound machine. Well, we have a few ultrasound machines. It, I think, is one of these modalities that will eventually find a home, but right now it's somewhat experimental in that, for the most part, I'm not saying it's not a useful test. I'm saying that to aid my diagnostic acumen, it doesn't usually add much to my management strategy for a patient. Uh, I think predominantly the, the, the two main pathologies that it's going to help with is retinal detachment and blood in your vitreous, either in the form of if you have a, a uh, you know, penetrating foreign body that's causing a large blood clot or a big uh, vitreous bleed, uh, both of which are predominantly seen on, on ultrasound, and gets around the, the problem of you know, cataracts and uh, different other ways that we try to inspect that posterior chamber. Sure, it's nice to be able to say, hey, and I saw it on ultrasound. It helps us look cool for the ophthalmologist. Yeah, right, exactly. The practical aspects for, for us that, that cause problems is you need the right probe. Um, if you have, a, as many ultrasounds do, a large curvilinear probe, it's very tough to get that on the eye. It's too large, so you need a probe really with a small footprint. Um, the, they call it the vascular probe. The, yeah, the vascular probe, or, yeah. and, you know, it has different descriptions depending on the company. Dr. Perfiris, do you have uh, any comments about ED ultrasound for eye disease? Uh, we're just starting to use it ourselves in our department. And I think the, the cases where this helps the most is sort of in the middle of the night, somebody comes in with uh, new onset floaters and no, no, no flashes of light or no decreased visual acuity. And you're still sort of worried about retinal detachment, but you know it's probably going to turn out to be just a vitreous attachment with maybe a vitreous hemorrhage. So you can sort of you know, put the probe on the eye, take a look, and you know if you don't see a, a major retinal detachment, uh, then you may not wake up the ophthalmologist three in the morning and, and you know just hold the patient overnight and get the ophthalmologist to see them in the morning. As opposed to if you actually see a, a you know a big sort of ribbon flopping there, you know what I'm going to call the ophthalmologist now at three in the morning so I have something more concrete to tell them. Sure, that actually reminds me of the point that these central retinal artery occlusions, for some reason, tend to happen in the middle of the night. So you're actually more likely to get the patient in the middle of the night when it's going to be harder to get the ophthalmologist out of bed. It's also important, as we see with stroke, sometimes a patient sleeps right through it and uh, because they're not 
opening their eyes in the middle of the night, they're not going to notice a key visual change sometimes. Right, yeah. Uh, Scintillations may trigger it because an ischemic retina scintillates. That's why you get flashing lights. But uh, they may not notice it if it's in the middle of the night. It's a problem. Which often translates into them... You know, a lot of times the presentation for central retinal artery occlusion is they say, I just woke up like this. Yeah. And it probably happened sometime in the middle of the night. On to our last category of patient. This is the painful loss of vision. Not the red eye, but the non-red eye painful loss of vision. So here's the case. A 29-year-old woman presents with a gradual onset of headache, followed by a sudden onset of decreased vision in her right eye, which has progressed over the last 48 hours. She reports her eye is mildly painful, and the pain worsens when she moves her eye. She also reports seeing colors and flashing lights with eye movement. She has no photophobia and no paresthesias or weakness in her face or extremities. She has no nausea or vomiting. There's no history of trauma, no constitutional symptoms, and no fever. She has no cerebrovascular risk factors or thromboembolic risk factors. Her past medical history is unremarkable. On exam, the patient was alert and oriented with normal vital signs, including a temperature of 36.8. Visual acuity is 20 over 20 in the left eye and 20 over 200 in the right eye. Eyelids, conjunctiva, sclera, cornea, anterior chamber, iris, and lens were all normal. Pupils were equal, round, and reactive to light. A swinging flashlight test showed a relative afferent pupillary defect in her right eye. Extraocular movements were normal. There was no nystagmus. Other cranial nerves were normal. Fundoscopy was normal, as was the rest of her neurologic exam. So, Dr. Perfiris, is there anything else you'd like to know in the history and physical about this patient? I want to know if there were any previous neurological diagnoses. Uh, has she ever had migraines? Has she ever been diagnosed with you know, MS, multiple sclerosis? Anybody in her family have multiple sclerosis? I'd want to know more about uh, any possibility of any facial infections. Has she had uh, any sinus infections or cellulitis of the face? There you're thinking orbital cellulitis. Or, or cavernous sinus thrombosis. With the MS, you were thinking optic neuritis. optic neuritis. This patient did not have a history of migraines, no personal or family history of MS, and there were no indications from the history of physical that there was an infectious process. On further history, the patient did report that some colors seemed less bright or washed out. So with this in mind what would the most likely diagnosis be? So she has sort of the, the classic description of optic neuritis, which is an, basically an inflammation of the optic nerve, which involves uh, usually demyelination of the optic nerve leading to these symptoms. It's usually found in women, uh, young women, usually between 15 and 45, and usually presents with painful loss of vision, usually in just a, in a unilateral eye. With optic neuritis, sometimes people talk about the a triad of loss of vision, eye pain, and dyschromatopsia, which is a fancy word for saying that their color vision is washed out. In particular, they talk about their red color being washed out. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you'd expect to find on physical examination? Usually the visual acuity is markedly decreased, even to the point of of light perception. The external part of the eye looks normal. And most of the time, when you look at the fundus, the fundus will look normal as well. 
the classic teaching is the patient sees nothing and you see nothing when you look at the fundus. In about a third of the cases, there will be some inflammation of the optic disc, but in two-thirds of the cases, it's retrobulbar, so when you look at the fundus, you see nothing. These patients tend to have an afferent pupillary defect. Could you just go through with us how to do a swinging flashlight test and what the afferent pupillary defect would tell us and what the differential diagnosis of it is? Sure. It's basically anything that, that blocks the light from getting to your brain will cause a relative afferent pupillary defect. So normally when you shine a light into a pupil, it constricts. So when you're doing the f swinging flashlight test, when you first do it to the non-affected eye, both eyes will constrict. When you swing it over to the affected eye, because now there's a relative difference that the eye does not see uh, as much light, it'll paradoxically dilate when you hit the affected eye. And then when you swing it back to the normal eye, it'll constrict again. You can break, break it down to, into pre-retinal, retinal, and, and behind the retina. So anything that blocks light from entering the, the eye, so if you have a big vitreous hemorrhage, obviously a globe rupture, if you have a retinal detachment, if you have uh, optic neuritis, or if you have anything that, that's sort of compressing the optic nerve, a retrobulbar hemorrhage. And then anything that causes retinal ischemia, like we were talking with the central retinal artery occlusion. Optic neuritis is associated with MS in a significant proportion of patients. It's kind of a tough diagnosis to make because, as you were saying, there's not much to find on physical exam. What is the role of the MRI in the diagnosis and management of optic neuritis? Well, the, the MRI will help sort of prognosticate whether this patient will end up with multiple sclerosis. So if you do an MRI acutely and you start seeing the, the plaques, then almost for certain this patient either has or will develop multiple sclerosis. And the trials show that if you start this patient on IV steroids, IV solumedrol, the rationale for starting IV solumedrol or high-dose steroids is that it will help resolve the, the visual loss sooner, uh, and it may postpone the development of MS symptoms by two years. So this trial you're talking about is the optic neuritis treatment trial, and that seems to be sort of the... Or the landmarks. The landmark study for this. Bottom line here is that you should be giving IV solumedrol as soon as you make the diagnosis. That's right, for, th for three days. And then you can switch over to oral steroids afterwards. Okay, so these patients need to be admitted? Yes. The difficulty comes in when you're suspecting the diagnosis and you're not sure, you know, an MRI is not so easy to get especially for this kind of diagnosis. It's not an emergency, but on the other hand, you do want to start IV solumedrol. So what do you usually do in these kind of cases? Usually, if, if it's a young female with painful loss of vision and I mean, to the point where they're, you know, they're counting fingers, you usually don't have a problem convincing either the internal medicine or the neurologist to admit them for high, for high dose steroids and get them an MRI the next day. So you'll start them on steroids on spec? I on mean, spec. similar to what we were talking about with the temporal arteritis? Besides the obvious solumedrol, are there any other proven treatments for optic neuritis? So the, there have been some studies that have shown that IV interferon showed some benefit, but that's something that I would probably discuss with either the neurologist or ophthalmologist that uh, will be admitting the patient. Here's what you need to know about optic neuritis. It typically presents in a young woman with the triad of loss of vision, eye discomfort or pain, especially with eye movement, and dyschromatopsia, which is just a fancy way of saying screwed up color vision. This is often described as colors looking washed out or looking through a frosted glass, and is particularly true for red objects. 
The change in color vision is often more prominent than the change in visual acuity. An afferent pupillary defect is almost universally present, so be sure to do a swinging flashlight test on every patient who presents with visual loss. Lastly, the fundoscopic exam is most often normal. You sometimes will find blurring of the optic disc margins and swollen-looking veins. The mainstay of management is IV steroids and an MRI to rule out MS and a consultation with the ophthalmologist and neurologist. So those were all the cases that we have for this episode. Before we leave, though, I just want to ask a whole slew of emergency eye questions to our experts today. The first one is, do you use antibiotics for all cases of infectious conjunctivitis? You know, how can you differentiate between bacterial and viral conjunctivitis clinically? You know, do you ever just not give antibiotics assuming that it's viral? And in what situations do we definitely want to give antibiotics because there's something dangerous that we might be missing? Yeah, it's a good question. Is for something that's so common, you know, we haven't even standardized that in medicine. I think uh, if you presume it's an infectious conjunctivitis, uh, I think for the most part, the message I, I give the patient is 90% of the management is, is the irrigation and washing out your eye. The addition of antibiotic drops, whether let's presume it's bacterial, that presumably aids the scenario, but it's not as important as the as the washing out of the eye. I tend to give them, you know, I think we're, what it's going to boil down to is what do you do, what do you do? I tend to give them. Occasionally, if somebody's just got a concurrent URTI and, you know, they're describing non-purulent exudate, just tearing as opposed to the more kind of gooky, thick discharge, you could avoid giving them or say, look, try just irrigating your eye and if it's not getting better in a day or two, then take it. You know, the times you want to be careful are for pseudomonal infections. So pseudomonas is a gram-negative pathogen that causes a lot of illness in humans, and it only grows in kind of chronic, wet, warm areas, one of which is the eye. And it's a pain in the butt to try and eradicate. So in patients who have contact lens use, they're at risk of pseudomonal eye infections. And if you get a, the worst case scenario would be an abrasion, you get some pseudomonas in there because the, the patient's a contact lens where they continue to use their contact lens. The uh, oxygen can't get to their cornea, and it's a, it's a facultative anaerobe, so it kind of prefers a non-oxygenated uh, environment. And it overgrows, and you get a keratitis. That's a problem. I mean, that can lead to catastrophic vision loss. So in, in contact lens wearers, you've got to be fairly aggressive about giving topical antibiotics. But I would say that it, it is a time when you're going to want to give, say, topical topromycin, which is a, an aminoglycoside that's targeted towards pseudomonas. Your other avenue to explore is topical ciprofloxacin, for instance, which does have some coverage for pseudomonas. But for the run-of-the-mill bacterial conjunctivitis, and you're not worried about pseudomonas, I, I see a lot of people giving tobramycin, and that's really not going to target the, the staph and strep that is probably predominating in your conjunctivitis. So there you've got to give, you know, polymyxin or, you know, polysporin, uh, optimyxin, these kinds of topical drops that actually target the organisms in question. You know, the textbooks say that for viral conjunctivitis, you're more likely to have preauricular nodes. There's going to be yeah. less chance of purulent discharge that it, it becomes bilateral very quickly, maybe more so quickly than bacteria. 
Do you find any of these useful? I, I think a better way to look at it is when I see conjunctivitis 90% of the time, it's unilateral. So that doesn't exclude the possibility of viral. I know ophthalmologists have given up trying to differentiate the two. They don't care if it's unilateral or bilateral. You've got nodes or you've got URTI symptoms or you've got pure lint versus uh, clear exudate. They don't care. They can't really differentiate. I agree. I tend to give the antibiotics to, to pretty much anyone who has the, uh, what you suspect to have conjunctivitis because it's very difficult to tell the difference between viral and bacterial. It's also a battle. You know, if, you know, if, the, if a mother brings in her child, she's waiting five hours, and at the end of the five hours, you tell her, oh, it's probably viral, so I'm not going to give you anything. I think, though, there's a challenge in not prescribing topical antibiotics for such a condition. Yeah, I mean, the topical antibiotics are pretty benign. You know, it's a whole different story, I think, than giving antibiotics to a 10-year-old with a bit of otitis media, with no fever, and, yeah. you know. Although, having said that, I mean, I have seen a number of cases of people who get an irritant conjunctivitis from the topical antibiotics. Absolutely, especially the, especially the tobramycins and that. Sure, and they come in and saying, you know, I started taking this drop and it's worse. And you think, well, stop taking the drop. Yeah. Because of the drop that you probably had a, an infectious conjunctivitis that's now long since gone. Mm-hmm. And now you just got a, an irritant conjunctivitis from the drop you're putting in your eye. So, sure. yeah, there's potential downsides. Yeah. That's, that's much more common with sort of the, the, the sodium sulfate drops in the, in the yeah. IV and, and the gentamicin and the tobramycin yeah. drops. I agree. I, I found one that, that most kids can tolerate is, is fusithalmic. So it's a topical fusid ointment that's only twice a day and it covers all your, stra- your strep and your staph. Okay. And then I guess the other bacterial conjunctivitis that we need to watch out for is gonococcal conjunctivitis, which is a, a whole other treatment as well. Could you just review for us when you would suspect gonococcal conjunctivitis and how you would manage it? Well, I'll talk about the adult. Maybe George can talk about the uh, the pediatric. So adults can get gonococcal conjunctivitis. Obviously, it's in somebody who's been exposed to gonococcus and has topical exposure to their conjunctiva. The patients I've seen tend to have a substantial purulent exudate, really much larger than you'd anticipate with a normal staph or strep bacterial conjunctivitis preceded with a history of a recent sexual exposure. And here you're going to treat gonococcal conjunctivitis as you do gonococcus and the rest of the body is going to require oral antibiotics or parenteral antibiotics, depending on how you and your institution treat gonorrhea. I've seen one case of that where literally pus was draining out of the eye and you would wipe the pus out. And as soon as you wiped it, it would literally reform yeah. within seconds and it was just right. oozing out. I, I think that's actually one of the key diagnostic pearls of gonococcal conjunctivitis is that you wipe away the pus and it reaccumulates right away. Now, the points in, in, in the pediatric population, especially the newborn population, is that any infant between days three and six and they come in with a red eye, you should really worry about gonococcal conjunctivitis that they may have picked up through the, through the birth canal. And those kids need to be admitted for IV antibiotics under the care of pediatrics and an ophthalmologist. And after day five or six, or between day five and six and day 21, it it's, tends to be more chlamydia, which tends to be less aggressive. But they still need oral antibiotics as well as topical antibiotics. All right, so that's a bit about conjunctivitis. Do you prescribe topical NSAIDs for patients who have conjunctival irritation or pain? For a few days. So if somebody comes in with a really bad coronal abrasion uh, and they have a drug plan because the, these, these drops can be very expensive, I'll prescribe some topical diclofenac or, or ketorolac just for a couple of days. Yeah, I do as well. Almost exclusively, though, for corneal abrasions because they're so, they cause so much discomfort. The good news is after the majority of corneal abrasions, if they're fairly superficial, heal 
sometimes within 12 to 24 hours. And so you really just have to get them through the, the next 12 to 24 hours and they're going to be feeling a lot better on their own anyway. But I, I, I use them. I think it's supplanted the role of patching the eye, which is obviously not a really considered standard of care anymore. We used to think that that helped healing, which has been proven not to. And we used to then think, okay, well, it doesn't help healing, but it makes you feel better because you're using your eyelid as kind of a dressing. Well, it turns out that that's probably not true, that the discomfort is probably equivalent. It also prevents you from putting drops in your eye. So I think we've moved away from some of those uh, management strategies, but now uh, are going to use other ways of decreasing uh, a painful eye and uh, patients say they actually work pretty well anecdotally i think the experience is much more than a drug company advert it actually does seem to work most of you know this already but i feel i need to remind you that no one should ever be sent home with a script for topical eye anesthetics like alkane primarily because they can end up with brutal iatrogenic corneal ulcers here dr kingsley tells us about which patients with corneal abrasions require ophthalmological follow-up well, my line is I give them the option of ophthalmologic follow-up. First of all, I, everybody with the corneal abrasion, theoretically, they can slough off that overlying cornea because maybe the stroma didn't knit properly and I sell them. Look, it could be three, four years from now, suddenly you're going to get a painful eye. But what I say is, uh, I think what's a, kind of a practical balance is if you wake up tomorrow and your eye is fine, I don't personally don't think you need to see the ophthalmologist. If uh, you are still having discomfort or you're getting changed in your vision, here's the follow-up and they can see you tomorrow. But there are some exceptions to that. Again, somebody with a very large corneal abrasion, somebody where it's an organic source or you're worried about superimposed infection. Yeah, I agree. I would make them the appointment with ophthalmology within 48 hours and tell them if they have no symptoms in 48 hours, they can call and cancel it. There's a sort of an old quotation, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So anybody with one functioning eye uh, if they have any sort of complaint in the other well eye, I uh, would take it much more seriously. Uh, e even if it's something as simple as conjunctivitis, I would probably ensure some kind of ophthalmological follow-up in case to, to make sure they don't go blind in their one functioning eye. Sometimes it's difficult to know when you should be calling ophthalmologists and working hard to get them into the ED quickly to see your patient. There are really four key non-traumatic eye emergencies that require prompt ophthalmologic consultation. One is angle closure glaucoma. The second is severe uveitis. The third is acute loss of vision from CRAO, temporal arteritis, retinal detachment, or optic neuritis. And the fourth is a significant corneal ulceration greater than a millimeter or two. If you want to get a visual of what some of the key eye emergencies that we've been talking about look like, we will have a handful of images in the written summary to help you etch into your brain what CRAO, CRVO, and glaucoma look like. So I do recommend taking a look at the written summary after you listen to this episode a couple of times. I can't finish uh, an eye episode without mentioning Anton's syndrome. So Anton's syndrome is this amazingly rare thing. I've never seen it before. I've never heard anyone seen it before. But there is an Anton syndrome where there's a bilateral occipital stroke that causes the patient to go blind in both eyes. But not only that, they they actually don't admit that they're blind and they can often get hallucinations. And so they think that they're not blind and they're walking into things. So I can be proud. Well, I'm going to remember that next time you're on shift. Yeah. <laughs> is he hallucinating? Does he see the patient? Is, is, there, a, is, there, is there a Simon syndrome? Uh, I would certainly hope so. <laughs>
Before we wrap up this episode, I just want to tell you about this very cool case we had a few weeks ago. Paul Rosenberg, who was our expert guest for our episode on renal colic and body packers, had a case of a guy with an abrupt onset of severe headache who he was working up for a subarachnoid hemorrhage. After the CT was done and was read as negative, Paul just happened to be chatting with a neurologist who was seeing another patient in the ED, and the neurologist told him about Tursen syndrome. Now, I don't know about you, but when Paul told me this, the first thing I asked was, what the heck is Tursen syndrome? Well, it turns out that in some patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage, there is a sudden rise in ICP, which causes the retinal veins to rupture in a typical way, so that when you look at the patient's retina with an ophthalmoscope or a panoptic, you'll see what's called a subhyloid hemorrhage, which is a boat-shaped venous bleed that appears as sort of a puff coming from the central disc. So this neurologist turned to Paul after looking at this guy's fundus and declared that he had, with 100% certainty, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And it turns out he was right. This fundoscopic finding is pathognomonic for SAH. The patient went on to have an LP, which showed lots of RBCs in all the tubes, and the patient went on to have surgery for his aneurysm. Now, this neurologist is one of those guys who's been practicing forever, and in the days before CTs were even invented, he said that he sometimes made the diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage just by looking at the fundus. Not only that, but Tursen syndrome was a marker for bad outcomes, so he could often predict which patients would do badly. I think this is a good reminder that we should not be abandoning our physical examination skills in an era where half of the ED patients are getting advanced imaging, because often we can make the diagnosis just with a good history and physical. The more we rely on advanced imaging to make diagnoses, the more our physical exam skills will degrade. Physical exam is so 20th century. (laughs) (laughs) On another note, I just got back from the Essentials of Emergency Medicine Conference in San Francisco, which was fantastic, and had the opportunity to have dinner with some eMERGE docs who all have their own websites related to emergency medicine. And I got to tell you, these folks are awesome. They all have really informative, educational websites, which I recommend that you check out. Here's the quick list. Lifeinthefastlane.com is out of Australia, and it's a blog on all the latest and greatest cool stuff in emergency medicine. If you haven't checked it out, emcrit.org, which is out of New York, which covers the management of intensive care patients in the ED with an audio podcast by Scott Weingart, is outstanding. Thepoisonreview.com is a very cool website which keeps you updated on all the latest in toxicology. And lastly, academiclife.blogspot.com is a blog by Michelle Lynn out of UCSF which is all about learning from inspiring people in the academic world of emergency medicine. In terms of upcoming EM stuff you should know about, U of T is revving up for a great EM conference called Update in Emergency Medicine, which is in Whistler this February. It's a great conference with some of the best skiing in the world, which they make plenty of time for. There'll be some of the best speakers in Canada who have been on EMC, like Eric Latofsky and Shirley Lee. There's still some open spots, so register soon. Just Google Update in Emergency Medicine Conference Whistler 2011, and you'll find the website that has all the details. Well, this about wraps it up for episode number nine on non-traumatic eye emergencies. I'm hoping that next year we can do an episode on traumatic eye emergencies and talk about stuff like lateral canthotomy for retrobulbar hemorrhage and how to manage globe rupture in the emergency department.
And on that note, until next time, take it easy. Take it easy.